the psychedelics they give you the reminder that you need yeah uh, and it's so easy to have an experience and then just come back and then get bogged down in the day-to-day of everything and just get back into old patterns Wilson. Episode 12. This episode's brought to you by footfire.co.uk. Footfire.co.uk. Assisting you to slam dunk savings on uh, the latest basketball sneakers and apparel and uh, all the stuff you need basketball discount codes, all kinds of cool stuff, as well as some media stuff that's, that's happening. It's, it's a new thing, check it out for sure. Unless you hate money. And you just want to pay full price for everything, you know? Yeah, check it out. And, uh, yeah, today's episode is with Sam Nia from Hoops Fix, uh, among other things. The other cool stuff that he does. And uh, probably one of my favorite podcast episodes. We talk basketball, of course, uh, in this country. And we talk about Hoops Fix and what he's doing with Hoops Fix. The, you know, the biggest uh, basketball site in the country and uh, and his experiences with psychedelics I mean I, I, we could have gone on for, for hours and hours more man it's a really cool guy to talk to we could have talked forever Sam was also great gracious enough, gracious enough to uh, to accommodate me as well and uh, at his uh, his workspace that he's got uh, in London so a big shout out to Sam for that of course and uh I hope you enjoy it as much as as much as I enjoyed it. Uh, Mr. Sam Nita. Alright, so yeah, we're gonna have to do all that again. No problem at all. About so introduce Hoops Fix. How when did you start Hoops Fix? Uh so Hoops Fix, as it's known as now, um, was officially launched January the 1st, 2010. Um, but actually, the kind of earlier version of that was the summer of 2009. Um, so the original plan... So Hoops Fix is UK's largest basketball website. You know, we, we cover um, British basketball at every level from, you know, junior under-14s all the way through to the Great Britain senior men and women. Um, and abroad as well. Players and abroad, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, kind of anything that's to do with basketball in, in England, uh, in the UK, we kind of cover it. Um, but yeah, the original plan actually was when I when I graduated from university, I, like I knew, well, going back in further than that, obviously I wanted to be a professional basketball player. You know, that's kind of every, every basketball player's dreams, you know, to play in the NBA and stuff. Um, so growing up, that was kind of like the goal. That didn't happen. Uh, it's only now, <laughs> kind of, at this age, I look back and realise I wasn't even remotely close. You know, not even remotely close. Um, yeah, I've seen some some of those guys. I've been on the court with some D League guys, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's not even the same. It's not even close. <laughs> and it's tough, you know. And that's do you know what? That's one of the things that I think with uh, with young British players is, you know, I, I speak to a lot of these these young guys all the time, and and they all think that they're going to be the next pro because they're averaging thirty a game in there. School yeah, league or whatever levels. Yeah, they just because of all of our talent, our top talent is abroad. They've got no measuring stick of actually the levels of of, of how good a good basketball player is, yeah. uh, and so they have these 
you know, crazy expectations. Um, and again, I don't ever want to be the person that says, oh, you can't do that and shut down someone's dreams or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of disillusioned players um, that think they're a lot better than they are. Um, in a way, that kind of helps, though, doesn't it, don't you think? In what sense? Like, you know, boxers have to have that protective ego. You know, I'm the best, I'm the champ, I'm whatever, I'm going to... Yeah, I mean, having that win. mindset is a good thing, but it's like... I mean, it's arrogant. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. Not, when you play against it, you know it when you see it, for sure. And when you coach it, you definitely know it. Yeah. But when I played in Birmingham, I had Nigel Hansen was my coach. And okay. So everyone has stories about Nigel. For <laughs> everyone has stories reasons, about right? Nigel. But uh, his, he always used to say, it's easier for me to, to turn you down than it is for me to pump you up. Yeah. It's easy for me to tell you. Because he, he, he gave me an ultimatum. He says, if you don't take 15 shots a half, you're not playing. I was like, what? I said, he says, you, don't, you turn down one fucking shot, I'm taking you off. And he, he did, but he only had to do that a couple of times yeah. before I was... Because no, it wasn't in my nature to shoot that often, but as a jump shooter, it was important to our yeah. team. Yeah, no, yeah, no. The mindset thing is a huge thing. Uh, and yeah, it's better that a kid thinks that they're, you know, going to be pro and whatever else than doesn't, yeah. um, for sure. But then the, the flip side of that is that they make poor decisions uh, around the rest of their life, whether it's schoolwork and whatever else, because uh, they think they're going to be a professional basketball player. Like when, when I went to, so I went to, first went to Brunel University in 2004. At this point, so I was 18 years old, and I, I genuinely st still thought that I was going to be a professional basketball player. Mm. And when I got to campus, uh, I realized there was no outdoor basketball court on, on campus. We had practice uh, twice a week, two, yeah, two or three times a week. Um, and I couldn't get into the gym. To, to, to shoot and I'm like well how am I going to actually practice to be better and, and become a professional basketball player I ended up dropping out of university after six weeks basically because I thought no I was reason. going to be a professional basketball player and I need to be in a better situation uh, to be able to pursue that, that dream um, you know I ended up going home I had some injury problems I was battling with tendonitis in my knee and plantar fasciitis so the whole idea was to go home and, and work for a year uh, and rehab and, and work on my game and then you know try and get to the States or whatever uh, but you know in hindsight I went back to Brunel a year later at this point, I still love basketball, but I kind of realized that, you know, yeah. it's not going to be the career thing. Um, and, you know, it worked, out, it worked out well for me. But at the same time, if I wasn't so disillusioned in the first place, uh, maybe it would have been a different story. Um, I think there's a London bubble as well, though, isn't there? There's a best in London doesn't necessarily mean best in the UK, but there's a, this opinion as though it is. It feels that way because I'm a northerner, obviously, yeah. I'm from Coventry. yeah. I mean, there's it does yeah, feel there's, that way sometimes. There's definitely a different. Uh, there's there's a different this idea of where you stand as a. Yeah, I mean, there's a you know your stereotypical London attitude is kind of like you know I'm the best. It's good in a way. Yeah, I mean, well, you t as that that as an example, when you compare, if I compare, I, I don't think it's as bad as it used to be growing up, but uh, if you take any London team and you put them against, you know. A, a team from Sheffield or or wherever, like Dorset, yeah, like just the intimidation factor, you know, of certain like, like Barking Abbey, for example, yeah, like I mean, and NASA, they scare the crap out of teams, yeah, a hundred percent, because you got essentially like all these white kids, middle class white kids, yeah, yeah. That they're not ready, yeah, they're like just have, have never seen, like no. I remember when I was growing up in Eastbourne, uh, I'd never seen anyone dunk, like no one could dunk in Eastbourne, like, and then these two these two guys. Uh, one one called Max, one called Eric. Eric actually was playing for Derby Trailblazers a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know whether he's still playing now. But um, they came down to the... We used to play on the seafront courts. They came down to the seafront courts and uh, 
and we're dunking. And me and my friends were just like, oh my goodness, like yeah. I've never seen this before in my life. And they weren't even doing anything fancy. They were just kind of taking off from a little bit further out and just doing simple one-handers, two-handers. And we were like, oh my God, this is crazy. <laughs> like, uh, and, that's, and that's what it's like. And you know, 100%, if I, at that age, you know, 16 years old or whatever, had faced a London team like Barking Abbey, like, I would have absolutely crapped my pants. Full and they would have won already just because of that. Um, and yeah, so there's, I think there's, um, there's a de- difference in mentality for sure, between between London teams and uh, and the rest of the country, because um, it is so it is so so much more doggy dog. Mm. Um, but but yeah, like that's not to say that London players are better than than everywhere else. Um, but there's definitely a I, I would say a, a strong difference in mentality. I think London has a reputation of better coaching. No, London and the north, the far north. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to... I don't know if it's true. A, a, a reputation with who? Players? Players, yeah. I mean... I don't think it's true. I think that, like, things are changing so much. Like, the junior landscape is so different than, than what it used to be. Um, you know, even in terms of, uh, well, f- first of all, players being able to access facilities. Like, for me growing up, I couldn't get in the gym. Like, no. It's just never going to happen. It's still not easy. But uh, I saw a tweet, I retweeted a tweet you had about badminton. Yeah. If you want to get any basketball player to talk, you just talk about badminton. Yeah. We could fill two hour podcast just on b- badminton. Yeah, the ongoing battle. Bane um, of our lives. <laughs> but yeah, the, you know, the, the academy programs that exist now, you know, whether it's Barking Abbey, you know, whether it's Charmwood, whether it's City London Academy, mm-hmm. which are practicing every day, uh, you know, they've got yeah. team practices and individuals. Plus, then, you know, if the kids want to get on a court and shoot, they can do their own workouts as well. And then they've got games on Wednesday, games on the weekends. Like, I mean, it was never like that. You know, yeah, I had to know, hear on from, 10, 15 years from ago. the riders. Say that again, sorry. I had to hear had you on from yeah, the riders. Okay. I went to, I played with to here at uni. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I, I was helping his under 16s coach, helping out coaching with his under 16s. Yeah. And they have that riders facility that they can just go and use. Yeah. And they have individuals where yeah. one of the riders players will work them out if yeah. they. And some of them are not taking that opportunity. And I'm thinking, like, when I was under 16s, I had to only play. I used to shoot in the snow gloves on the rain every day i would take some kind of shots i mean that's why i shoot a ridiculous percentage from the free throw line because i had nothing to and why i can't dribble yeah. it's because i had no uh it was grass so yeah. all i could do was yeah. shoot yeah that was exactly the same but, in Eastbourne. they have this they have this court and they have a one of the shootaways there which is kind of a yeah. secret yeah well, it's not anymore obviously I can't just it. <laughs> but they have one of the shootaways there that you can just book 10 pound you can shoot for an hour you get 300 400 shots up Things are undoubtedly changing. Um, I'm actually I'm writing an article at the moment, uh, which I've been working on for way too long. I actually, f- I first started writing it like five years ago um, about facilities, and uh, it's almost finished now. Um, but I opened it up start of March for the first time in a couple of years, and even just in that time, the difference uh, in terms of the facilities that now exist. Obviously, uh, University of Essex have just opened. A new facility which looks pretty similar to to Leicester. Um, you know, Leicester facility exists. Uh, you've got Worcester. You mm. know, Leeds have got their situation. Um, you've got the National Basketball Perform- Performance Centre in Manchester. Uh, you know, all the, that never used to exist. Um, and it's it's progress. You know, I, I still think there's a there's, there's a massive amount to be done. But um, but things are definitely moving forward on that front. Uh, and that's providing opportunities for players that that never used to have them like that. You know, uh, so yeah. Yeah, it's not necessarily about whether the kids will take that chance, but if one of them does, it means that there's the opportunity there for them to do that, to yeah. progress. Yeah, for sure. Um, and obviously with now more British players sort of,
playing abroad and going to bigger and better colleges and finishing and then playing for the national team and there's this pathway that's kind of yeah well, I, you know it's I, difficult I, to be the first to break that ground yeah I'm kind of I'm torn on the pathway thing because it's like you know we, we celebrate every time you know a British player gets a scholarship every time a you know a British player um, signs a professional contract abroad and and a, for them that is 100% you know most in 99% of cases it's the best situation for them mm. um, or the best decision that they can make based on the knowledge they have and everything else but actually every time that happens it hurts the domestic game because we lose another player and so you know I, I don't I'm, I don't know what the answer is first of all I'm not going to say that I know the answer um, but I'm conflicted about whether or not we should continue to encourage people should look like our players to be going abroad. You know, why can't we be in a situation where we develop the game here so much where actually, you know, for a player, I think the college, the college basketball thing, you know, when you're comparing the UK to the US, it's, we're so far behind. I can't yeah, yeah. ever see that changing because you're talking about, you know, millions and millions of pound yeah, budgets. It will, it and will stuff. always be the odd player that goes and plays yeah, at that level. Um, but I think that, you know, after, after college, uh, there's no reason why we can't have options in the UK, in the BBL, for players uh, that are as good as, mm. if not better than situations that they're currently in. Um, so do you think it's more of a reputation that it's not good to be here? Well, the reputation definitely doesn't help. There's a stigma mm -hmm. to it, you know, like for sure. So they'll go for maybe less money, but in Italy or in France or Yeah, whatever. yeah, oh, 100%. You've got, you know, we've, we've, we've had guys, you know, playing, you know, German 4th, 5th division. Yeah, I've seen know? guys that, I mean, I wouldn't name names, but I've seen guys that go and play abroad that didn't make our D1 team. Yeah. We're amateur. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it's, it's literally, that is the mindset here. It's like, you just get out as soon as you can. You don't want to play here. And, you know, there's even, there's guys that have come back. I've got to be careful about how specific I get about <laughs> when they came back and stuff. But, you know, there are guys that are in a BBL um, that have openly said to me, like, I'm just trying to get out of it as soon as possible. Like, it's like, this is a stopgap. Uh, I'm trying to get a contract abroad. You know, they, and, and a lot of it is just the, um, it's the stigma. It's the association of it. Of but just I can like, kind of see where they're coming from because to me, it's always like a, a chicken or the egg sort of thing. Yeah. So to get the players to stay, there has to be financial incentive to do that. But there won't be financial incentive unless the players stay and make the league better. Yeah, That's yeah, the way it's, I yeah, it. it's a chicken. Yeah, it's a chicken so egg situation. I mean, what's going to happen? Either there's going to be this massive injection of money, TV money, and then players will stay, or players will stay and then the TV money will come in. But I don't think the players are going to take the lead and actively not make any money in order to improve British basketball until they yeah, get it's, older it's and not start just, coaching. I wouldn't say it's just about money either. It's just the general. It's the culture as well, right? It's yeah. like they want to go to a country where you feel like you have fans and you're appreciated and you, you get like media coverage yeah and you feel like an actual professional basketball player like here even Luar Deng who I don't even know if he still is but for a long time is the UK's highest paid uh, sport sporting person athlete right and he can come here and he can walk through London and no one will have a clue who he is no just look at him because he's 6'9 or whatever yeah exactly yeah. Um, and so you know I, I totally get and that's I think that's part of the allure of the states it's like if, you know even if even if Move college basketball out of the, the equation. You know, we've got kids that are going to high school, and a lot of time the high school level they're going to is not good. It's not good. And it's not better than what they'll be playing here if they stayed in the UK playing in the EABL. Or yeah, whatever. I've seen that a lot. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's not even necessarily about the level. It's the fact that one, they're in the states, the perception of them being in the states and stuff. But two, 
you know, their peers are going to recognise them as a basketball player. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, he's the English guy that's come over to play basketball. He must be really good, you know. And they're going to see him on around uh, around high school, whatever, and be like, hey, how you doing? Be like, like celebrity, at you school. know, yeah. And they're going to get, you know, people coming to their games. They're going to know that there's going to be the YouTube channels, the mixtapes. You know, might come and film their games. Um, they're going to get, you know, coverage in the local press. Like, it's all that stuff that that kind of uh, comes together to kind of create this situation that we're in. Um, yeah, I think that's actually really important, feeling like an athlete. I think that's why like teams that have track suits, it sounds stupid, but teams that have yeah. track suits and t-shirts yeah. and hats, kids gravitate to. Yeah. Just because then it's like, because I mean, I played football when I was younger as, as I pretty much all English kids did, right? Yeah. I played football quite well. And if you're walking around school in your Coventry City track suit, Granted, Coventry City, yeah, okay. <laughs> but if you're walking around school in your Coventry City tracksuit, it's like, oh, yeah, he's a, he's yeah. a footballer, yeah it's, yeah. it's cool. So if you get to walk around in your, you know, your Barking Abbey tracksuit or whatever it is, your Leicester Rider stuff, I'm sure that's pretty cool in Leicester yeah. to have Leicester Rider stuff. Yeah. All, all anyone wants, you know, aside, when you t take sport out of the equation, is to be significant, right? It's to yeah. be significant to people. So, so at a most fundamental level, uh, you know, wherever a player can play where they feel significant, where they feel important, where they feel loved, where they feel appreciated, valued, whatever, that's where they're going to go. And, and, and right now, you know, like I said, there are programs in the UK that are doing so much better than, than we've ever used to have. And mm -hmm. uh, are really, I think, beginning to provide options that compete with other options that, that, uh, that a lot of players do have. Um, but ultimately, that, I think that's going to be the winner. You know, that's, it's, it's not all, I think, there's this perception that we all care about money and I think that's over-exaggerated. It's like everyone does care about money and you mm. need it uh, to a certain extent. But when your basic needs are taken care of yeah. and you, maybe you've got a bit of spending money that you can save or whatever else, after that, there's a load of other factors that then come into consideration. That would explain people taking less money to go abroad. Yeah, and even if you look at the NBA, there, there are guys that can max out their contract and choose not to because they want to give the, the rest of the team options so they, uh, to sign other players so they've got a shot at a championship. Like if it was all about money, that would never happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, granted, we're talking about guys that have probably already yeah, got a few million in the bank. That's once basic <laughs> needs yeah. are taken care um, of, once your mum's okay and yeah. all that. Uh, we don't really have that here. It's kind of like, if I can pay some bills, then I'll stick around. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there are guys that have stayed. Wh what do you mean in terms of... That, I've th that I think could have gone elsewhere that didn't. There's lots of guys in the BBL that stayed. Like who? Lots of British players that stayed. Andrew Sullivan was here for a long time. Yeah, but he, went, he did go abroad. Came he back had a though, stint. Right? Yeah. But I think he still could have gone. Justin Robinson's it. Yeah, Justin Robinson chose to come back. And again, that's because the allure of playing at home. Like, you know, yeah. he says, like, uh, you know, he's got, he's got two children now mm -hmm. um, and he wants to be around them. Like, I, th I feel like he seems to, and again, I don't, I don't know him massively personally, but fr from the outside looking in, I feel like being a father has fundamentally changed him. Yeah. Uh, and um, I guess, you know, I don't have children, so I don't know how it feels, but I would imagine that it makes you reassess a lot of things in your priorities in life and everything else. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't leave the country for that reason. Because yeah. I've got a son. Okay. And I couldn't... I, and it was right as I got sort of offers. They're not great offers, but yeah, it's yeah. a foot in the door. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I've worked really, really hard just to get my foot in the door. Yeah. I'm crazy. So if I have my foot in the door, I'm going all the way through the door. Yeah. It's the way, I, was, it's the way yeah. I, I think about stuff, right? Yeah. But I got those offers and I'm thinking, I'm not going to be away from him nine months of the year. Yeah. And actually not sending home enough money to, for that yeah, to be yeah. fine. Like, I'm... I'm barely getting by. I can make more money just working full time at Costa. Yeah. So fuck it. I'm just gonna 
yeah, do I my think... PhD and play D1. It's the yeah. same level, but, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, Justin coming back has been so good for the league. Uh, well, he's killing, isn't he? Yeah, he's killing. <laughs> he's and, killing. and it's a homegrown, it's, it's, it's a homegrown star and it's, it's kind of um, the, the type of player that we're missing because generally, you know, he, he does have options abroad still uh, mm-hmm. and he's chosen to come home and, uh, he's, you know, I think he, he ended up with a, with a pretty decent deal from the Lions that is, is similar to what he would earn overseas. Um, and he's a role model type guy as well. Yeah, he's, and he's, you know, he said, and yeah exactly. And he said he wants to do stuff in the community, work, you know, he's obviously from Brixton, wants to do a lot of stuff there. Like, you know, he comes, when we do the Hoops Fix All Star Classic in Brixton, he comes every year, he doesn't have to do that. Like, uh, it's because he's just a genuine good guy who wants to who wants to help and give back to the game and, and all that yeah. stuff. So um, I think that, you know, him him being back here is, is great for the game. Uh, and it kind of gives a glimpse of what it could be like if some of the other guys uh, were able to come back as well. And, you know, you speak to all of them, they, they all say, like, if I could earn what I could earn, I mean, now we're talking some of the higher level guys, if, mm-hmm. you know, if I could earn what I could earn overseas uh, in England, it would be England every time because they don't want to be, they don't want to be away from home nine months a year. A lot of them do have children, a lot of them do have girlfriends, wives and whatever else. Um, that's the attraction for a lot of uh, American players to come here when they could have gone elsewhere is the fact that we speak English. That and is. that's a big attraction to them, to a lot. Of, and the culture is way more similar to the Americans here because of we speak English than it is if they go to France or Italy. Yeah, I mean that that European culture is completely different. Especially, I mean, I know guys that have gone to Greece. Yeah, if you're not prepared to deal with those Greek fans, yeah, come to England because you don't have that here. Yeah, you might get drums, but you're not getting fireworks shot at you and coins and racist abuse and all sorts of stuff. I mean, you, yeah, you hear, you hear from guys that. Uh, you know, like even speaking to Flinder Boyd, like, um, who's got a British passport, Ameri- um, but, you know, grew up in America. And I think, I don't know if it was on the podcast or whether it was a, a different conversation, I, but he, I remember him specifically saying about, talking about how many Americans have trouble uh, adjusting to the, the, the cultural shock, the change, and just mm-hmm. want to stay in their room, play PlayStation or whatever, and, yeah. and not go out and do anything. And that, that's why, like, England is such a unique situation. Uh, you know, there are things that could be done here uh, which other countries with American players or whatever that other countries just could not do. Like you look um, in Australia, like uh, Terence, it was Terence Ferguson, wasn't it? That I think who who went there instead of going to college mm-hmm. and did a year there. And again, you know, there's not the language barrier. Culturally, it's probably a lot similar to. A, I've never been to Australia, but I would assume it's a lot similar to America than the rest of Europe that doesn't speak English and, and whatever yeah. else. Um, and they're in a situation where they're getting, you know. Well, they, they had an NBA draft pick playing the league for a year because obviously there's a you know the rule that they they can't go straight out of high school. Whereas like, well, if the BBL was was good enough, I have no doubt and had no, you know had the budgets and whatever else, I have no doubt that we would have uh, potentially have guys that are going to be drafted the year after come playing England for a year. Um, you know, Brandon Jennings, he went to Italy. Yeah. He went to Italy for he went to Italy for a, for a yeah. season. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, Manuel Emudier, Emudier, yeah. China, in China, yeah, did the same sort of thing rather than college. Yeah, I, yeah, I like that idea actually. But again, uh, that money, yeah, you know, can the BBL get those players in terms of money? In terms of because are the because t- the teams are struggling? Are the teams yeah. struggling to the level? I mean, it's not it's not that they're not willing to pay. It's I think they can't. Yeah, I mean, there are yeah, there are ways of um, there would be ways of potentially doing it. Uh, so. I don't know how much to say about this, <laughs> but um, a few years ago, uh, there was a franchise that was potentially a BBL franchise that was potentially um, 
going to come into the league. And uh, it's not the Knights, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> and they were working with a they were working with an, with an agency, like a big time big time agency from the states, um, like a sports agent. I mean, like a, a basketball agent. Yeah. Um, and and their whole model was we sign the guys straight out of high school, we pay them you know a good amount, like mm -hmm. they'll fund that because they have millions in the bank. Um, assign them to a contract and then there's a buyout and then of course that buyout then helps fund the franchise for them future players that want to come in and whatever else but also it then allows them to take that hit in the first place and yeah. then they get a payout when, when, the, when the player goes to the league like there are things like that that's what Lavar's trying to do isn't it with his weird league he's trying to do a yeah he's doing the youth yeah he's trying to do a big baller brand league and then I can't believe we're talking about a big baller brand. I know, <laughs> too much media for that guy already. But the reason that's clever is because then he has the first conversation with them out of all the shoe yeah. companies. Yeah. He has the first conversation with those high school kids. Yeah. It's just whether, you know, are you going to convince that kid not to go to Duke? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? There's a difference between your, 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 your real high-level, you know, lottery picks. Yeah, do you want to know Coach K or do you want to know LeVar <laughs> yeah. Ball? Um, I know who I would rather have in my phone. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, do you know what? The, the big baller brand, we're obviously in London a couple yeah, of weeks ago yeah, for the big baller, big baller brand clash with London Lions. And uh, like, I, you know, I don't necessarily agree or like how LeVar goes about things. Um, but in terms of the premise of what he's doing, what he's trying to do, I really respect it. I think he's it's freaking awesome. Like, yeah. you know, like building an independent brand, taking a power away from, you know, the the, the multi, uh, the, the big conglomerates oh, and corporations sure. like Nike and whatever else. Yeah, he's brave. Um, I feel like the execute, like, I actually hate the actual brand. Like, first of all, calling it big baller brand. Yeah, me, it doesn't, I mean, the logo is not great. Massively cheesy. The logo like looks like it's been done by a 12 year old. <laughs> like, those kind of things, not a fan of. But actually, the premise of it and what he's trying to do is awesome. And you know what? Like, it shocked me. Uh, one, how many people there were at the Copper Bombs? It was, it was yeah, I was actually really surprised. I saw it all over Instagram. Yeah. A couple of my friends went, like, traveled from wherever. I'm like, and, and, from and, what? And not only was it almost full, but um, the demographic of the crowd, they were young. It's not the typical yeah. BBL audience. Like, that's the audience that the BBL can't get and the BBL wants to get. Like, th that's the audience that, if you get the young people, that's what the brands want. Um, I always say to people that, uh, I remember a few years ago, um, I was doing a bit of work with Nike and they went to the BBL Cup final. At that point, it was in Birmingham and they came back. I had a meeting with them that week and they were just like, uh, yeah, we went, to, we went to Birmingham and that is something that we could never be associated with. Uh, you know, it's just the, the audience is just way too old. It's just not the demographic that we're after. And I feel like the BBL has made progress um, since then, mm -hmm. but still uh, the audience is not quite young enough um which yeah which is why the, the yeah the big baller brand thing was 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 impressive to me and and the other thing was they have this pop-up store out of front which was rammed over the yeah. whole time yeah i saw the pictures they shifted so much gear like i'm just looking around i see everyone wearing snapbacks t-shirts and i'm like you know it's again it's like i respect it i want people to support it like i, I would like to see the brand do well i think it's awesome yeah the fact I would never buy something like that and wear it because I just think it looks so cheap and awful. Um, but it's it does like, make... It's like Supreme. That's what I see when I see Supreme stuff. Okay, I'm yeah. like, I don't get it. Yeah. It's a brick. Uh, why, why, are you, <laughs> why are you paying like a thousand pounds for a crowbar painted red? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. But, you know, kids like Lonzo Ball. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, like he's, he's in a situation where he's got, <laughs> you know, one kid who's playing for the Lakers. He's got... Uh, Mello, who's likely to be, you know, a lottery pick in a couple of years' time, and then 
Yeah, and then you've got, got to be a beast Jello of a who's dad. declared for the draft. Like, he's so a he's beast a, of a dad. If, he's one if, kid's in the NBA. Do you know what? If he, if they got all three sons in the league, he might go down as the goat for dads. <laughs> he might go down as the goat for dads, but also, I mean, in terms of what it would do for the brand, like it would be almost like their Facebook page, which is just a Facebook live show following them around or whatever. It's got like 1.4 million followers. Um, you know, it, it was it blew my mind how like everywhere at, at the Copper Box, everywhere they went three cameras on him at all times just follow him everywhere all the brothers him like it's just insane it's a different world um, but you know fair play to him he's doing it you know they live stream it did pay per view on it I, I don't know the numbers on it um, but it's, it's you know building an independent business uh, and I think it's, it's a good thing like you know fair play to him I, it always surprises me that more you know legit um, players don't try and do the same thing and do something independently uh, because you know, now with the internet and everything, you have the power and the tools to do everything you want to do, you know, whether it's sell T-shirts or uh, run yeah. events or whatever. And just having that, you've got the NBA marketing machine behind you. You're going to be, you know, televised every single week where you're going to wear your own sneakers. Like, you're going to shift a few pairs. Um, in the pros, that's definitely a, a way to go. But in college, so for kids that are already doing something themselves, the second they get to NCAA, they then have to stop. And there was the player that had the YouTube channel. Yeah. Twitch, and a big YouTube channel. Yeah. And it, was, it wasn't like, you know, stupid amounts of money but yeah. it was yeah, yeah. you know he was doing something yeah. he was proactive and you know if you're going to play in the NCAA you can't do that anymore it's going to yeah. mess with your eligibility yeah it's deemed as profiting profiting off his off his likeness and what's do you know what, what's and really they're allowed to do that what's really unfair about that is that all the other students are allowed to do it so yeah. it's like you're actually now penalising them you're not you're, you're penalising them yeah, for being an athlete you know what I mean you're actually penalising them for being an athlete and uh, you know I feel like that debate about whether college athletes should get paid has been um I mean, it's been rising over the last few years, and I've, I feel like more and more people are just seeing in general how fucked up it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do think that that's going to change. I don't quite know how, and I don't logistically. I don't, you know, it's very complicated because there's a huge difference between, you know, a Duke and a UMBC or whatever, you know, uh, and the budgets that, and what they have. That would stuff. just mean that the pay needs to be relative. Same as it, you know, if you go to, for example, I heard this about the college football. Whoever's in charge of college football, he was talking about how the NCAA wouldn't be able to afford to pay the players all the same, yeah. whatever. And I was just thinking, why would you pay them the same? So UConn basketball women's, for example, would probably earn more money than UConn men's players yeah. just because of the exposure they get. And they should because they're the... If you but watch yeah. women's basketball, UConn is the team that you watch. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be related to how much income they bring in, surely. Right, and all the players wouldn't earn the same either. Yeah, You know, the walk-ons wouldn't earn the same as... Whatever, yeah, that, if they earn anything at all. Yeah, it gets. Like, I mean, it's a very complicated should be, situation. You know, I don't market know how. Value. Would, I don't know how it would work. Um, but maybe that opens the door for more people to do, as you were saying before, to go to China or to yeah. go somewhere else. And yeah, if Lamar Ball has that link with London, maybe you get Chino Hills players coming here. Maybe they've got some other good players. It's not just the ball. Players. Yeah, maybe um, anything could happen. Uh, yeah, like I'd, yeah. Logistically, I don't know how how it'd work, but there needs to be something done. Even if it's even if it's not paying the players, but actually just letting them do what they like. Like it's like, well, if you want to, yeah. if you want to have a, a yeah. car wash whilst you're at college, then you can do that, you know, or whatever it might be. They can as soon as they leave. I mean, there's um, players with podcasts. JJ Reddick's got a podcast. I like that one. Very good podcast. I I really enjoy that just because it's so insightful when you've because the other thing is the players are relaxed with him. Yeah, because they don't feel they like know. it's someone fishing for a story and you yeah. know is looking to trip them up and get some big exclusive viral thing um, and maybe it's also like you know I've said something could you edit that out it's like yeah, yeah. 
yeah fine no problem <laughs> yeah that's, whereas if you'd say that to you know Max Kellerman or whatever it's no that's the story yeah you know. it's do you know what, it's a tough like I don't have any um, you know formal journalism training mm. I, you know I never studied journalism other than kind of looked into things and so, so essentially I, I've, I've made it up as I go and I've had to learn all sorts of stuff and I'm perceived as a journalist. That's a, that, like that is, you know, I have to get media accreditation for events. There, by all means and purposes, I'm classed as a journalist. Mm. Um, but I hate it because every conversation I have with everyone, and, and you know, now I'm at a point where I have personal relationships with a lot of players, yeah. with a lot of people within the administration and whatever else. And you know, I would consider many of them actually my friends as opposed to just uh, you know acquaintances or whatever. Yeah. Um, but any conversation I'm having with they always preface it with you can't put anything online about this you know you can't you can't do this no worries and it's yeah. like you know I don't want to have friendships where people think that uh, any conversation we have might end up online you know like of yeah. course unless I specifically say to you okay this is going to be an on the record interview record, that yeah. we're going to publish whatever else then it's not going anywhere and I, I, that balance uh, and the other thing I've still you know I still struggle with to this day is um, you know covering things that is by yeah like it's, it's a news story but it's negative uh, about a player, um, you know, and we've we've kind of tend to we've we've kind of erred on the side of positiveness and, and stay away from negativity, but really, you know, if we want to be the source of, of information and news and whatever else, then um, we probably need to be a bit more balanced. But it means that I think that what I worry is I burn those bridges uh, mm -hmm. with players and 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 the relationships that I have, which are, again are, are beyond professional. They're like personal relationships. I don't want to. I don't want to cost those friendships uh, so it's a, it's a it's a really hard thing to do and I haven't quite worked out how to do it but also as a media outlet especially as one of the only media outlets in the UK I feel like it's our job to hold people accountable to hold organizations accountable because no one else is going to cover it so if you know if there is like a, a CEO of a federation that's spending millions of pounds on wasting loads of money someone needs to write a story about it because the Guardian and Telegraph and whoever else are never going to cover it mm -hmm. uh, and then it falls upon me and then it's like oh well you know if that CEO ends up being a friend of mine <coughs> you know how do you do it I, I'm going to end up potentially costing him his job um, so maybe we need more we need, need more journalists in, 100%. in basketball yeah 100% I always say we need more like yeah. the bigger the bigger the the media coverage of the game will be the better it will be not only because there's going to be more eyeballs, which is going to potentially lead to more uh, commercial revenue and uh, mm. exposure for the players and profile and, and whatever else. But also, players here are so insulated, they're not used to media accountability. No. They're not used to criticism. And so, whereas, you know, if LeBron James actually read and took seriously everything that's written about him every single day, it would send him mad. And he would, he would have so many people to pick, pick uh, you know, beef with or whatever. But in the UK, it's like, I know that if I was to publish anything, oh, they, player, they will read it. Yeah, yeah, they will. They will not only read it, but they will take it personally. Even yeah. if it's even if it's a completely fair factual statement. If I'm saying, X player, he shoots every time he gets the ball. Like shoots way too much. He needs to be a little bit more calm, play a bit more under control. Yeah, yeah. Players just can't handle it. You know, it's yeah. It's if you talk crazy. about shooting slumps or you know decline of their game or whatever that it is going to be taken personally yeah, I mean, because you have that relationship the, with them case in point right now yeah like commonwealth games and again i'm going to preface this with i'm not trying to slander any player or, or anything like that of course but you know england lost to scotland mm -hmm. and by you know really didn't do that well mm. and uh if they were a football team that had that type of performance with all the media coverage that it got, they would be oh, slaughtered. Slated, yeah. They would be slaughtered by the press. And I've had so many messages privately from people 
being like, you know, this is really disappointing. You know, I expected our teams to do better. Um, you know, this and that. But the gap between England and Scotland in basketball is not like it is in football, is it? Well, well Scotland have got they've got two GB guys first of all. Like, so yeah. they've got two two guys that legitimately will make the Great Britain squad. Uh, That's some good players. First of all, um, but also, you know, and again, I've said this a few times that in the time that I've been covering the sport, that the National Federation for Scotland, Basketball, Basketball Scotland, Scotland, has made huge steps forward. I've like, only ever heard good things about Basketball yeah, Scotland. Yeah, they've made massive steps forward. And, and I think they would be the first to admit that they've still got ways to go and things aren't perfect. But actually, they're progressing in ways that England have not in mm-hmm. any way, shape or form. Um, and I think this, you know, this Commonwealth Games, uh, well, the women have just qualified for the final this morning, which is awesome, uh, just before you arrived. Um, but... You know, the men, obviously, to lose to Scotland. And again, I I think that, going back to the whole media coverage side of things, a lot of players and and generally fans of the game, because because there isn't the media coverage, uh, we don't have the context, we don't have the history. You know, we don't... So so as a result of that, it's almost like we don't realise the magnitude... Yeah, of how much of there's how, no basketball history. Yeah, of how, how much of a bad look that is really, and it's, it's a lot of the older heads that are, that I've been in touch with. You know, guys that are now OAPs or whatever that are just like, this is you know, this is disgraceful. Like we should never lose to Scotland. And really, on paper, like when you look at uh, populations and, and and everything else uh, as a nation, um, and well, you know, our Commonwealth Games team have got legitimate BBL players that are putting up good numbers in the league. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should, See, I, I always hear stories about the good old days because of who my coaches are. So obviously I played for Nigel Hansen and now I play for Carl Brown. Yeah. So I've always heard stories about, you know, what the BBL was. And then when I played for when I played in Birmingham, I played for Birmingham Ace. And when people would ask, you know, who'd you play for? Where'd you play? I'd say Birmingham. Like, oh, Bullets. They still knew about Bullets, yeah. even though that was the 90s, the yeah. last time that they were yeah. around. These are people in Birmingham and they had no idea that no, it's you know it's coached by all the players that played for them split up and have their own sort of clubs and yeah. I imagine a similar thing happened in London a lot of players that were together sort of the Guildford Heat days sort of split out and have different yeah I mean there used to be I think whenever you speak down. to the older heads they always say there's, there was a lot less clubs back in the day so the talent was a lot more concentrated yeah Nigel always said you know if you didn't play in I mean it was just D1 if you didn't play in BBL or D1 then you just didn't play anymore you played local league and that yeah. made local league better yeah because then you'd get all those other players playing in local league and D1 was better because it was cutthroat. It was, you know, you, someone comes to practice, you fucking kill them because they literally come in for your minutes yeah. and you, if you want to play, yeah. you've got to... Whereas now it's... In a good way, there are more teams. More people are playing the game. But I think it, it's all sort of a result of the, the money leaving the game, the TV money. I mean, it was a Budweiser and Dairy League league and it was... Yeah, I mean... It's, yeah, and looking like, at the history, I mean... The, I was fascinated to know that, you know, I might be wrong in this, but this is what I read. Birmingham Bullets was a Fiat Coventry in like the 50s or something ridiculous. Teams, I don't know. I know nothing about sponsors. Yeah, I know nothing about any of They were Fiat, Fiat Coventry, so it was a Midlands team, and there would be a, northern, a couple of northern teams and some, a lot of southern teams. Yeah. And it was a genuinely competitive sort of, these guys are known, you know, there's, there's, fans around the UK of old BBL teams and they yeah. know their history but I as a player growing up knew none of that knew yeah, nothing yeah, yeah you, it's, it's, that, that is I know more about the NBA yeah 100% <laughs> and I, I even said with the, when the big baller brand came over here I was like it's ridiculous that there's a 16 year old kid 
who goes to high, well, who, who did go to high school in the states that has more of a profile here than someone like Justin Robinson. Like, yeah. To me, that's insane. Like, there will be more young basketball players that have heard of Lamelo Ball than than have Justin Robinson. And to me, that that not only re- you know emphasizes how fucked up a situation it is, but also the only reason that has happened is because of digital. It's it's essentially because of Ball is Life and all these mixtapes and and, yeah. uh, and and the internet that's kind of spread and, and and so that's where the BBL and the leagues here are missing a trick because yeah we do stuff on digital now um, but there's still so much more we could do uh, to profile these guys and until that's done it's going to be hard to um, to get anyone of to get anyone to reach that that type of level. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the, I think the history thing is a huge thing. I've always said that the lack of documented history about the game is one of the most harmful things uh, that prevents us being able to really create a culture. Um, it's funny you should say about Bowman, but it's one of the so we're this hasn't been it hasn't fully been signed yet, but we're we're signing a partnership with Live Basketball TV. Um, oh yeah, this summer uh, we're gonna have an exclusive channel on their platform to put out some of our content that will go up there exclusively before it's released publicly. Um, and one of the things that we are brainstorming at the moment is, uh, this is a working title, I don't know what it's fully gonna be called, but something along the lines of Rep Your City. And we're gonna go to all of the major cities um, with a basketball culture mm-hmm. in England. And we're gonna film a 10 to 15 minute documentary, which goes into everything you need to know. Like if you're from Berman or whatever, Okay, we need need to know about the bullets, you know. Yeah. We need to know about these key players that came out of Birmingham. We need to know where the key outdoor courts are or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just exploring that whole culture around it, so that you know, I don't think the audience for those things would be that actually that big, but the ones that will want to watch it will be all over it. You know, like if I was, yeah. you know, I grew up in Eastbourne on the southeast coast, like middle of nowhere, and you know, if if someone had produced a documentary about. Eastbourne basketball history. I would have been all over that. Like, oh, like I didn't realise that we had players that went on and did this and, and whatever else. So, um, yeah, I was like, it was like a heartfelt moment when I was like, ah, oh, shit, like that's Fiat Coventry. Like when they yeah. started all the factories, the factory workers had so much to do. They were playing basketball and then it moved to Birmingham and it became this big thing. And then because of the history, Coventry has this history of basketball for some reason. The people in Coventry love it, but there's nothing for them to gravitate towards yeah. since the Crusaders folded. But that, I mean, out of that, they move to Birmingham and it becomes this big Midlands thing. And then because of that love that's already instilled in the city, Crusaders comes up and Crusaders yeah. does, becomes this big thing in D1. That's, that's, like, that's amazing history. And I was around that as a kid because that's where I played. But I had no idea. Yeah. I was just turning up to yeah. these games. I had no idea about any of that. And that would be really useful to know. I think, yeah, like, this, like a strong, strong local basketball culture will create a bigger nationwide basketball culture. Um, It'd be nice to have these older heads from the BBL and know, I mean, I know who a lot of them are just yeah. because of coaching yeah. around the country and sort of doing my thing there and playing and them coming to watch and other coaches introducing them to us. Yeah. Like, yeah, I used to play with this guy. This guy is this. You need to know about him. These are the things that yeah. he achieved. But we're still but this, And the other thing for me is that this stuff needs to be done now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even recently we're losing, uh, you know, there, there are prominent people within our community that have passed away in the last couple of years. You know, Kevin Cadle yeah. most recently, he yeah. was someone that I had earmarks to do a podcast with and it never ended up doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all sorts of information that could have come out in that, which I think would have been really useful and contextual for people. Yeah. Um, when I first started covering the game, um, this guy named Peter, uh, Pete Jack, um, who uh, ran a, a website with Paw Print, um, which was like National Basketball League stats and, right. and everything else. Like he was the guy, like he passed away. And so there's, you know, 
we're at a point now where there's enough people that are still around mm. that have almost seen the entire history yeah. of British basketball. But they definitely less, have some opinions on how to improve it. Yeah, but that information needs to be extracted now yeah. before they're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say extracted, that sounds really mechanical. <laughs> mechanical. I don't mean but like that. But they need that, to be involved but, in but yeah, they improving. Need to, yeah, like I feel like they're, they're the people's opinions that, uh, and they're the stories that uh, will help create a culture that they need to be sat down, they need to be spoken to and interviewed, and, um, and their lessons taken yeah. forward. Um, that's why history is so important. That's why we study history at school, you know? It's like, that's what make the same drives mistakes. us forward as a species, you know? Uh, the same mistakes that have happened in the past if we, we know how, how not to do it. Yeah. And there is definitely a repetitive cycle, it feels like, especially within the administration of the sport in this country, of repeating the same mistakes. See, I don't... I mean, as a, I, mean I might be unique in not seeing any of that as a player, but generally, I don't know how England basketball is run. I've yeah. played in it since I was sort of 14. I started playing late, but I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Every time they release something, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> the communication side of things has always been one of the biggest criticisms. And I would say that, you know, with the current CEO, um, one of my, you know, he's been in the position two years, two years now, and they spent a ridiculous amount of time doing research. You know, mm-hmm. doing the basketball development model, doing these road shows, interviewing people, talking to people. But who are they asking? Because I've never been asked anything. Anyone who shows up, they did a survey online, which, you know, had a few, I think they had a few hundred replies to that. Um, That's, I mean, there's how many thousands of players? Yeah, but also, I, you know, you've got to ask the right people. You've yeah. got to know who the right people are to ask. It's what, you know, I could, it's like, if I go and I could ask you, and with all due respect, if you don't know how basketball England is run, then, no, then it's no use. On, no, no, you know, you're right. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, so, so yes, yeah, so you know they've done all of that, and this is again, this is a problem with having people involved with the sport that aren't from the sporting background. Mm-hmm. If you if you get someone that's got no knowledge of basketball, never been involved with basketball, they have to spend there's an adjustment period. They have to spend actually learning what the hell's going on, like what are the problems, yeah. and that you're just wasting more time. And people are tired of these these you know reviews and research reports and surveys. It's like they just want action, like actually do something. And you know now we're we're two years down the line, and you know what what has what's been achieved in that time. Um, from an administration standpoint, I actually really don't think a lot. Uh, I, when I sat down with him, um, probably it was two months into his role, maybe something like that. We met up in London. And was this the podcast episode? No, no. This was. I haven't interviewed Stuart on the. Oh yeah, I did do it. I did yeah, Stuart on the podcast. We're trying to do. A, we're trying to organise part two at the moment, which hmm. hasn't happened. Um, but the but yeah, when I first met up with him, this was yeah, it wasn't an interview or anything. It was just to have a chat about stuff. Mm-hmm. He he said, oh, you know, like um, one of the things I've I've realised or I recognise is that one of the mo- the biggest frustrations that people have is they never hear, f- they don't actually know what's going on, like what what the governing body is actually doing to help them, to support them, uh, what's going on at, at headquarters. So one of the biggest things I'm going to do is is communicate, and that just he just hasn't done that at all. Like nothing has changed. Um, and that's incredibly, especially as you know, we're a media outlet, so that's in- incredibly frustrating for us in terms of getting information and trying to find out what's going on. Uh, but also, you know, it doesn't help his cause because you've got you know people that uh, don't ever speak to anyone at Basel England mm. that are just like, well, you know, this CEO has been in the position two years. What's what's happened? Nothing. I'm still there's there's no fe- there's no change that's being felt on the ground. And until until change is actually felt on the ground by the players, by the clubs, um, they're going to keep on getting criticism uh, yeah there's a feeling that the club as a 
player. As I said, I, I, I don't hear how it's run. My experience with England basketball is just when they release reports and I get to read them. And that's only recent, recently yeah. that really I've ever seen it. And they may have released them before, but I never saw them. And, yeah, and that's someone who's involved in coaching. So I was involved in basketball every day. Yeah. But I, I never saw anything until, until recently. That, that's, I would say, one of the huge problems is that, you know, we've got all these people, we've got all these programs, which a lot of the time have a lot of voluntary staff and stuff that are working yeah. their asses yeah, off, yeah? Cool. Working their asses off on the ground. Uh, and they might be doing really good work, mm. but they've all just done it off their own back. There's no blueprint they've been provided with. You know, there's no, got no one from Barcelona coming down and being like, wow, over the last five years, you've registered X amount of members for us. Yeah, like, we clubs, really appreciate that. Like, clubs do it. Is there anything that we can do like, to support you, to help you? Like, is there anything you're particularly struggling with? Like, you know, when has Barcelona England, I don't know, like, ran a workshop teaching people, basketball teams, how to use social media? Like to grow their following, to grow their fan base. It's that kind of stuff. That's a where, big problem, actually, you know, with clubs. Yeah, like there's just, there's, I mean, that's you know, real surface level stuff. But yeah, um, of course, there's there's so many things that, as a federa federation, you know, your responsibility is to serve the sport and help the sport grow. Mm. And on that basis, you have to be working with your members, and you can't just sit in your office all day and just bark out orders and send out emails and, and whatever else without actually really being out there in the trenches, knowing what people are going through. Um, to get on with their stuff you know I, one of the reasons I feel Hoops Fix has been able to grow like it has and almost become you know in some ways a platform for the people like I feel like we're supported by everyone you know we yeah. do get criticism but generally uh, I would say the vast majority of the British basketball community support what we're doing if you don't get criticism then you're not doing anything yeah the criticism yeah. you get is the only criticism I've heard of, of Hoops Fix is, is from people up north saying, oh, it's London. just London players. And I'll explain that, right? First of all, <laughs> I'll, I'll explain that because I have to go through it all the time. So okay. I get it all the time, yeah? I live in London. Yeah, that, yeah. I don't, like... I've said that, it's like, what's he supposed to... What, what, when I go to Manchester, yeah? When I go to Manchester, whether it's for final events or whatever else, it costs me 250 quid. Mm -hmm. By the time I pay for the train, by the time I pay for hotels. And the other thing people don't realise, is I don't make money off any of this video stuff. Yeah. It doesn't make me any money. So it's like, it's costing me money. Mm. So it's like, I've said to everyone that criticises me for not having, like, Northern coverage or whatever, I'm like, if you want to get a camera... Go and stand on yeah. a baseline for two hours and then cut the footage up and send it to me. I will happily edit it and feature it. No one in nine years has taken me up on that offer. Really? No one. No one's just no doing one it themselves. To, no, no one wants to do that. Because <laughs> people don't realise, yeah, for a, for a two-minute mixtape, I've filmed the whole fucking season. Yeah. I've been there for like, you know, in, in the last couple of years, to be fair, I've, I've moved away from filming anywhere close to as much as I used to film because I'm, I'm as I've gotten older, I'm way more focused on actually trying to do things that are going to move the, for the business forward and yeah. move myself personally forward rather than, you know, getting a thousand views on a video that doesn't change anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're now in a position, digital has advanced so much where most games are being filmed and so we actually get stuff sent to us. Uh, you know, we've got hoopsfix.com forward slash submit. You can submit your clips. We go through them all. Anything that we think is good enough, we feature. We feature. Uh, so I've always wondered how they get caught um, because how hot people send, the, they cross someone or whatever, they yeah. yank someone it's like... How come that's on? But last week, yeah. I saw someone get got really bad and nothing it happened. Has to, it has to be submitted. To the, yeah. only way, the only way that we can feature something is if we know that it happened. This is yeah, another fundamental course. thing that people don't seem to realise. It's like, obviously, it's not in our interest 
to not cover plays. Of course. People seem to think we have some agenda. Like, it's not in our interest to miss it's the par- best stuff. It's paranoia, isn't it? Yeah, it's like... You're ignoring the North. It's, it's fucking it's, ridiculous. No, I, I wasn't there. Like, so you send yeah. me the clip if it happened, if something cool happened. 100%. It's, Someone drops 50, I'd like to know so yeah, I can publish it. As, our, as, as a national platform, yeah, we want to have all of the best content. <laughs> so, like, anything that you think that we're missing... The reason is because we don't know about it. Like, yeah. It's as simple as that. You know, yeah. there's no agenda or anything. It's because we don't know about it. We haven't been sent it. Like everything that gets featured is stuff that we, you know, of course, everything we get submitted doesn't always get featured. There's got to be a level of quality control because of otherwise people won't want to watch it or whatever. Yeah. Like I mean, we I've literally had kids send me a clip of them doing a layup on a hoop in their back garden. You know, asking <laughs> if they can be featured on Instagram. Like that's not going to happen. No. Um, that's nice though. That the yeah yeah of course it's nice yeah, yeah like, like I appreciate that, that. and that's all nice. you know yeah of course 100. Um, percent but yeah, like, it's, there's definitely no sort of under the surface thing going on of like, oh, we don't want to cover Northern guys. You know, we want to miss, we don't want to include this crossover because of this, because it was done to this player or whatever. Like, we will, if someone gets banged on, yeah, we want to feature that, regardless of who it is, regardless of who's getting banged on. Like, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, but yeah, there's a, you know, <laughs> you've a got to deal with, yeah, criticism that's not fair. And it's yeah, unfair. I don't think it's fair. It's you know, and I'll, I'll happily engage with people that want to want to give us that criticism. Mm. Um, because I, yeah, I feel like it, if I have a conversation with them, normally people will understand. Uh, but yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no agenda. Yeah. No agenda at I've, all. I've actually said that before in defense of Hoops Fix. Yeah. I've said, I mean, yeah, but I mean, how is, how are they supposed to know? Yeah. They weren't there. Yeah. You know, if if you let all the London games are being covered, it might not be because the London teams have sent the footage in. You might actually be there. Yeah. Recording. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, uh, Hoopsix does have a bigger following in London. Yeah. 100% because I've been at the games and stuff. And and as a result of that, we get way more submissions from London than we do everywhere else. Yeah. Um, it's going to be so skewed there's anyway. Like a, yeah, there's a bias. There's a bias there or whatever. But yeah, the thing that I was saying before we kind of, we sidestepped there, um, talking about the federation having to get in the trenches and stuff yeah. one of the reasons I was saying about Hoops Fix I feel like it's been embraced is because people have seen me at games every single week because I've gone to the final fours junior final fours senior final fours the cup finals like gone to Midnight Madness all summer like I've put in the work and I've been there and anytime anyone wants to call me speak to me talk to me about whatever I'll be there and I'll have that conversation um, and that's essentially what you've got to do like it, it definitely I don't think that it would have ever been able to grow as quickly as it did. Like we've kind of plateaued now. I, I don't know if we can necessarily grow that much more until the market grows. Um, but the only reason that happened in the first place was because I was everywhere. I was going everywhere. I was like, people, like when I had a job, yeah, when I, when, before I was full-time on this stuff, uh, I was, I mean, literally going to work and if, if a new story broke, I would leave work and I would go to an internet cafe I'd say that I had to go and do something or whatever, go to an internet cafe and I'd write the story and get it online. Like then the weekends and the evenings would be editing or going to games, all money that I was earning. And this is still the case. Like, you know, obviously I'm running a business that's doing a lot better than, than it was, but everything is reinvested. Like I do not pay myself uh, any more than I need to survive to pay my bills uh, and, you know, travel and whatever else I don't pay myself any more than that everything is reinvested into it um, because that's what I care about do you, uh, feel, do you feel that's underappreciated sometimes people have got no fucking idea like and I, I, I do feel like when people 
are critical. And again, this is a very small minority. Mm. People have got no idea what goes into it. Uh, I was actually having this conversation this morning, like the Commonwealth Games are going on at the moment. Yeah. My entire life is based around the schedule of the Commonwealth Games at the moment. Scotland are playing at one o'clock in the morning tonight. I'll be awake at one o'clock in the morning mm. and I'll be clipping that game and I'll be putting up highlights. I'm not getting paid for that. I will not earn any money off that. Like obviously it helps us in terms of growing the brand and yeah. knowing people knowing that we're, we're covering it and stuff. But actually there's no personal benefit or real benefit to the business. We could not do that and then just wake up in the morning and write a game report and that's what everyone else is going to do. Uh, you know, the same, there was two games in the middle of the night last week at 2.30 and there was the first one tipped to 2.30 and the second one tipped to 5. Me and Brad, who's the, the, the guy that works for me, who, who also needs way more credit uh, than he gets. Uh, he does a lot of the hoops fix outputs. People don't seem to realise that. It's not just me. Um, me and him were up at 2.30 in the morning through until 7 o'clock in the morning covering the games. Like, mm. Because we're trying to give back to the community. We're trying to do it for the community. And again, we're in a situation now, and to explain the business model on it, you know, I've said this on the record a few times, but I feel like it needs re-emphasizing. Hoopsfix makes a very small amount of money directly. If I was to stop everything else that I'm doing and just try and earn money off Hoopsfix, I would not be full-time on it. I would have a job. The only rate, the only way Hoopsfix can survive is to be funded through my freelance contracts. So we kind of, we basically have like a, I mean, I position it as a, as a creative agency um, for basketball teams and organizations. Uh, and my company is Cut The Net Limited. And so we... We have contracts with FIBA, with the Basketball Champions League, with Basketball England, with the BBL, um, you know, with other clubs, with an American website, and we do we produce digital content for them. I could shut down Hoops Fix today, and my personal income would not be affected, mm. and nor would Brad's. We would carry on. We would carry on earning exactly what we're earning now, and we'd be fine now. We needed Hoops Fix in the first place to be able to build that reputation because essentially it serves as a portfolio for us to be able to get the work. Yeah. But we're now in a position where I have all those relationships, with all those clients. I don't need Hoops Fix anymore. Like I could stop doing it. I'm doing it out of love. That's mm. the only reason I'm still doing it is because someone needs to do it. Like in British yeah. basketball, if I wasn't doing it, no one would be doing it, and that yeah, would hurt the game say, so much. If if you did shut down Hoops Fix. There's so much information nobody would get. Yeah, like because everything that comes through Instagram about British basketball is actually from the Hoops Fix account. Yeah, there, there, there are like there are right now. Take the Commonwealth Games. Like, okay, we're illegally ripping the clips. Obviously, you know that's something that I always I'm I'm I'm, I'm torn about because when we do that, we're actually at risk of getting our Twitter account and Facebook, Instagram stuff shut down. Right. We could get copyright strikes and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, uh, if I don't do that. There's no video footage from the Commonwealth Games no. that would end up online for people to watch or people to be able to see, to be able to, be able to build that relationship uh, with the players, to be able to follow the players, to be able to see the highlights, to be able to say, oh, like, I want to be able to jump as high as Rob Gilchrist when I'm older. I want to be able to shoot like Kofi, jo That's Kofi, actually Kofi Joseph. That's actually important for the players. Yeah, you take oh, for sure. Kofi, for example, if Kofi's blowing up all over Hoops Fix, other teams can see that. Yeah, yeah. Not, oh, yeah. not even just other BBL teams where he is, he's at Glasgow at the minute, right? So not even just other BBL teams. But teams abroad can see that because it's a now a nationally televised, nationally covered yeah. by Hoops Fix. A hundred, a hundred percent. Him, I mean, his parts of his mixtape will come from Hoops Fix footage. So, so, so many, there's so many players that have always said, "Anything I need, anything I need, yeah. they will do for me." Like whether Absolutely. it's an interview, whether it's a quote, whatever it might be, because of the coverage that we've given them when they won't get it anywhere else. You know, yeah. and there's, there's guys, this is why I, I'm, I'm sad that we've kind of moved away a little bit from mixtapes. Uh, and I feel like at some point we'll, we'll go back into it, but it's just, it's very uh, time intensive. But like, you know, someone like Luke Nelson, who we covered from a 16 year old all yeah. the way through now to, to a GB senior player, um, 
when we first dropped that mixtape of him at the Final Fours in 2011, I think it was, uh, you know, his dad has said, his dad said on, on the podcast, like, that in large part was what first started getting interest from D1 schools. Um, so, you know, and he, See, and he, you know, he's acknowledged to it, to me as well, like, and he said, you know, I really appreciate it. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that, that you did that. Uh, and so as a, as a result of, of doing this stuff, you know, it, that's what's allowed Hoops Fix to grow and kind of, you know, we can get certain exclusives. Uh, we can get access to players. You know, we can go to, we can go to an event where they're like, yeah, that you, there's no interviews, but actually I can just message a player and be like, oh, I'll kind of meet you outside afterwards and we'll do something and they'll do it. Um, because we put in the time, we put in the effort, they appreciate what we're doing. They feel like we've helped them. Uh, and again, and this this might change in the near future, but we've very much stayed away from anything negative. Yeah, I was just going to say, so that's that's why it's so difficult to be critical. Yeah. Because you do actually have this, I mean, players love Hoops Fix for that reason. Yeah. Players love you for that reason. Yeah, and I feel like, but I actually, I'm now at a point where I feel like uh, we need to be negative in some ways about certain things. And... Like a panel show negative, as in criticising game. Yeah, like, criti- well, yeah, criticising game, but criticising actions, criticising, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, I feel like that would really help. Like, a lot of our coverage right now is vanilla. We don't take opinion on stuff. It's just like, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. But actually, that's what makes things interesting. That's what makes Charles Barkley, you know, Skip Bayless. Yeah, I've always wondered people- about those kind of, those kind of shows. Uh, I've seen some, something, I can't, I, uh, my friend... Gat is doing Footfire. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you've had contact with, with yeah. Footfire. We haven't met yet, but uh, we met briefly actually at the Big Baller Clash for the first time. But, yeah, um, he, he's, he was involved in some sort of... I wish I knew more information actually from him. Some sort of a show that was like a introducing some around the NBA London thing. Yeah. Some kind of panel show, but discussing basketball. Obviously, they were talking NBA. Yeah. But I've always wondered why something like that, you, you couldn't just do that just even as a goof, even as a podcast. Well, but I think the part of the problem is that it's, it's actually hard to cover the games. Like, you, you yeah. the, the BBL is in a different situation now where if you've got a live basketball.tv subscription, you can watch all the games. Um, well, not all the games, but you can watch it's a lot of the games. Area, yeah. uh, it's on Free Sports TV. Um, so, so it's a lot easier than it was. Uh, but National League, uh, oh, yeah, the only way you're going to cover D1 is if you're going to games and stuff. So that's, <laughs> that's why that stuff is hard to Sometimes do. Sometimes we get game tape from the other team. Yeah, because they've put it on their Facebook. Yeah, and that's the way that we yeah, can yeah. watch. We can watch our own games sometimes. Uh, yeah, it's like it's fundamental stuff. But that 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 talking head stuff, that opinion yeah. opinionated stuff, is what gets people talking. It's like, you know, I don't think many people actually respect Skip Bayless's opinion, but they still listen to it and they love it because I do, it's an yeah. opinion. I do. do you know I, what even mean? if I disagree with what you're saying, I actually just want to hear him talk about yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is um, like that. And that, I feel like the game needs that. And so I, the criticism thing is. I feel like as long as I'm fair, like it's you know it's not just it's not being me being a dickhead. Like well, you could be the fair one and you could get a dickhead on with you. That's true. Yeah, and then just let <laughs> them take all the heat. Someone that yeah, doesn't have the personal Someone who's perfectly willing to be uh, the skip in that relationship. Yeah. And but this is this is another difficult thing about Hoots is that I'm so closely aligned with the brand. Anything that we put out, whether it's you know we've made mistakes in the past, which weren't actually personally me. It's other people publishing stuff or whatever else. People yeah. think it's me. Everyone. But you everyone, could always everyone you could always me. produce the show. Yeah, I have other talking heads. Yeah, hundred. Yeah, that's true. And that could be old old heads in the game. 
because I would love to do a opinion. sit down legends type yeah, thing. Their opinion. Um, I mean, and that would be another thing about teaching history. Yeah, you start to know who these people are. Yeah, very true. We've got uh, so in October last year we hit ten thousand subs on YouTube, so we got access to the YouTube space in London, which is like oh, fully cool. you know stacked out studio space, and you can you can build sets and stuff in there. So actually, one of the things that we want to do this summer is bring in you know Bucknell, KB, yes, uh, you know yeah. a bunch of older heads, sit them down and be like, all right, let's talk about. I don't know the best player in your area growing up like who were they why were they so good yeah. you know what do you remember about them um, and then you know what they're not afraid to criticize current players no exactly they're and, and they're afraid. respected enough and they're respected that they won't get the blowback right you know um rather than just some guy exactly that's and that's one of the things that is difficult for me is I've never played at a high level right so uh, who am I to, to be able to, to say that a player shoots too much or a player does this or a player does that no I don't know um, I mean you, you you know what you're talking about when you're talking basketball and you covered you covered the game I mean when did you start playing when you were younger when you were a kid 14 15ish but I never but I never played I was never coached uh, by anyone levels. and so I think that's really hurt my basketball IQ and I, and it, it I find it real frustrating I talk to a lot of people with super high basketball IQ and they're watching mm -hmm. games and I ask them what they think and stuff because for me I just don't see things like they see things yeah. and so like I remember I was like I was like I was at university when I was first told about help side defense. Oh, really? I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, like I just, okay, it yeah. was something that I was so just, just like- just a level of coach and you haven't Yeah, access. yeah, I was just like, this was my man and I just follow my man everywhere. And you know, and then well, someone still ends up- still level. Yeah, like <laughs> I just, it's just nothing that I, 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 yeah, like I'm, if I was to talk about insecurities I have, that is 100% one of them. And it's why I won't mm -hmm. talk about X's nose. And I won't say, oh, you know, uh, this play broke down or you know this guy's poor off the pick and roll or whatever it might be yeah. because I don't feel like I have the knowledge or the expertise to be able to chime in on that stuff um, yeah so I think producing the show yeah. is the way to go then because oh, yeah, that's love something to do you know it. how to do for sure Yeah, and directing um, how to you know and getting the, the message out getting these old heads on yeah so I feel like opinion, it could be I'd love to watch that to be honest could I'd be an awesome thing, thing. Uh, and the beauty of it is we could just get everyone in London for one day and just say, okay, it's going to be a long day of filming, maybe 10 to 15 hours or whatever. But actually, uh, we're going to do just, um, you know, we're going to bang out 10 episodes in a row. Um, and and then we've got 10 episodes. We can do, the, that's the first series or whatever, first season, and then release that, you know, once a month over the course of the next year or whatever, because it's not going to be time sensitive, so it can go out whenever. Mm. Um, but I would love to do that. There's so many things that I would love to do. And this is... And this comes back to the business side of things, right? Like, uh, right now, because Hoopsfix doesn't make us that much money directly, and we're making money off, off the contracts, the client contracts that we have, they always have to take precedence. So, you know, if a client contacts me today and says, we need this by tomorrow, yeah. I have to do that, regardless cool. of what's going on, whether it's Commonwealth Games final or whatever. Like, ultimately, I can't afford to lose that contract because I can't pay my bills. Yeah, that's what enables you to do the Hoopsfix. Yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah. but then... That obviously that harms hoops fix because all of a sudden like it might not something might not get the coverage that it should be getting because I have to do a client work. So uh, and this is why there's projects like this which what we're talking about now about you know sitting down with legends or you know yeah, all this other yeah. stuff that I want to do that don't ever come to fruition because I'm focusing on making money. Whereas like if I could be in a position where either I make money directly from hoops fix, let's just say you know crazy crazy scenario, hoops fix starts bringing 10k a month, I can drop all my clients right, and I've got so much money that I can 
do all the projects I want to do that are never going to make any type of money and have no pressure to get any type of return on them because it's already making money and I can do all the creative things that I feel like need to be done but actually aren't necessarily profitable um, which is uh, last summer I ended up hiring a developer and we, we're kind of going into software uh, we're developing a software product called Mason which helps um, sports organizations create social media graphics and, and that is the mm. whole premise of doing that uh, is to create a cash generating machine that means we can remove clients from the equation. We've got that, we'll have to do a bit of customer support for our, for our customers or whatever, but actually it's scalable. There's no difference between having yeah. five customers and having 1,500 customers, yeah. but the money, the returns on it is huge. And then we've got something that's uh, gonna fund what we're doing with Hoops Fix. And it means like, you know, the event, like Hoops Fix All Star Classic, mm -hmm. we can sponsor it with Mason. So it's like, then all of a sudden, if we get more viewers on the stream, it technically should be, we should get more customers for Mason. So it's like all these things become profitable. Mm -hmm. uh, where right now, like the thing that we've struggled with in the past, I feel like most businesses, they build, a, they build a product, they have a business, and then they're like, oh, I've got to find an audience. Like, where do I find my market? Like, I've got to, you know, start doing social media or write a blog or whatever it is. We've done it the complete opposite way, where it's like we've built this platform, which, you know, can do, at one point it was doing 50,000 unique visitors a month, a couple hundred thousand page views a month, like pretty decent numbers for, this, for the market that it's in. Mm. Um, but actually it makes no money. Like it makes 50 quid a month off AdSense, you yeah, know? Yeah. And then might make, you know, $150 a month off YouTube. Like, so it's making $200 a month. It's got 50,000 people going to it every month, but it's making us $200. Like, that ain't sustainable. Uh, and so we've never had the product where it's like now, it's like, okay, now we've got a product. Uh, now what should happen is when we increase our traffic numbers, we should actually increase our revenue. And then it becomes worthwhile to do all these things that we want to do. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the, you know, the long-term plan of, view of, of what we're trying to do with it yeah i respect i respect that a lot actually that, that you know it's, it's not the the cash cow i wonder if i actually wonder if people think it is everyone thinks i get i get people contact me being like have you got any jobs going i'm like do you think i'm hiring do you think i've got money to hire people <laughs> okay so people do think it's this people big, think it's a big organization bigger, bigger yeah, organization. Like, it's basically there's me there's bradley who gets paid part-time from me uh and then um we have We've got like a, a sort of subcontractors that do various different bits and bobs. So this season I had a, an assistant in Mexico, like a virtual assistant in Mexico that would help with some editing stuff. Uh, and then um, there's a guy in London, Casper, who would help uh, go and film some games sometimes if we needed someone to go and film some games. But, but they're, you know, they're not paid like salaries or anything else. Like that's it. Like it's not, yeah, it's not some big business. We don't have offices. Like this is where we are right now. This is a... Uh, uh, a co-working space slash members club in London like I pay them every single month so I've got a workspace that I can come to and if you know people like yourself come and meet me yeah. I can meet people I can bring them here whatever but this is my office like, I don't have it normally and I only joined this like a few weeks ago before that well yeah before that you know I'd been Costa Coffee in Westfield or John Lewis in Westfield Stratford like that was where I'd work out of every single day yeah. um you know, I get like, we, we do work experience placements with kids from university, like sports journalism students or, or whatever it might be. And I'm like, I can do it. I'm happy to do it. Like, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to do it, especially if you're, you're interested in this domain and you're interested in British basketball. We need more people like you. But I don't have an office, so you can't mm -hmm. come anywhere with me. You, if you want to come in, you're going to be coming to a cafe with me every single day. You have to meet me there and then we'll go through the stuff. But it's going to be a lot of sitting on, on a laptop. It's not, you're not coming to some fancy offices and, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, yeah, people definitely think that it's something that's a bit bigger than, a lot bigger than it is. And that's, yeah. that's the illusion of social media, right? Like yeah. everyone has these fake lives and they've got all these followers and it makes them look like they're really famous. But it's like, you know, 
we only, even on Instagram, we're, we're, we're like approaching 12,000 followers. Like, that's not big by any means. And you can't even, if you were to try and directly monetize that, if I was to go out and say, I'm going to sell ads on this, like if you pay me X amount, I'll put an Instagram story up, I'll put a, you know, we're not charging more than a hundred, you know, a couple hundred quid for that, like yeah. depending on how long the, 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 the campaign is. Um, or even something like Patreon. Do you know what? It's funny you say that because that's actually, I think that's the way we're going to go. Uh, I set up a Patreon account for this podcast, but yeah. I don't want to, I don't like the idea of tweeting it out. It so you haven't pushed it? Awkward. So I haven't pushed it at all. Yeah. I've got like two patrons only because I just haven't pushed it. Yeah. Like I, just, I don't even, I haven't even tweeted it. I haven't. Well, I don't, yeah, like I, I, I know. Mean, I will at some point. I'll get over it at some point. This, but it feels uh, weird to me. This comes back to the, like the market. Like in British Basel, people do not want to pay for things. People want freebies all the time yeah. for everything. And so I actually don't think, like, I want to do a Patreon because I feel like there'll be some people, not a lot, there'll be some people that'll be like, actually, do you know what? I really appreciate yeah. what Hoopsfix is doing and I want to help support it so that, so that potentially he could then move away from clients. And then if he was to do that, then they would actually be able to put out more content, you know, start producing a, a podcast consistently, which is what I always say I'm going to do. And it never ends up happening because real world takes over and everything well, I think else. People will definitely support if they hear what you've been saying. Yeah, about but then, yeah. You know, the fact that this is something that you've done, that you're not doing this as a cash cow. This isn't to make money off of you. This is literally because yeah. there isn't. If, if who fix went away, you, you wouldn't see anything. You, you say that, but like, you yeah, know, case case case, case in point, right? Who fix all star classic? I've been straight from day one. It is completely one hundred percent not for profit. No one gets paid. They don't in, believe you. Well. I think they believe me, but I still, every single year, every single year without fail, I will get numerous messages from people. Can you give me a freebie? Like, can you get me in? Can you get me in? And it's like, what you don't understand, yeah, is that <laughs> without selling the tickets, we make, we lose money. Like, we yeah. do not even break even. Right now, we basically break even every single year. That's, that's the goal, is just to not lose money. Oh, yeah. You know, I work on it for three to six months. Like, work my ass off on it. You know, and then on the day, we have 30 to 40 volunteers that come in. There are certain people in there that get paid because they're from external to the basketball community that, you know, like the live streaming company that comes in, we obviously yeah, have yeah. to pay them. They're not going to do it for free, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But everyone, like, guys on the mic, uh, you know, the, the DJs, like, they're all doing it for free. Like, everyone is volunteering their time. And if we do not sell the tickets, if we do not sell the allocated tickets that we have, and, and Brixton only have a, a capacity of 700, uh, and you know a, a few hundred of those are going to be um, player guests because we give the player, you know, we give the players guest tickets, yeah, of and then the players include uh, players and staff are included in that capacity because that's that's 100 people in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, if we do not sell the tickets, we do not break even. Like as simple as that. Mm. And then for people to be like, can you get me in free for five fucking pound ticket, five pound ticket? I'm like, are you actually serious? Like, are you really serious? You know, we don't have to do it again. We don't have to do the classic. No. The only reason I do that is because I think it needs to be done. Like, we sh- we, sh- we profile, we showcase the junior junior players. Um, you know, we give them a platform. It's a really cool thing. Like, I really enjoy doing it. Like, it's a lot of stress in the run to it. But afterwards, I feel a lot of intrinsic satisfaction uh, from doing it. But actually, we don't have to do it. No. We could just sack it off and it wouldn't make any difference to what we're doing at all. Um, so, yeah, it's frustrating. And, and that's what I'm saying about the, the British basketball market. It's very, very hard to get them to part ways with their cash and and again then when you see people willing to spend 150 pound on a pair of nike trainers <laughs> yeah. it's just like so you're going to spend 150 pound on some corporation that makes billions but you can't spend five pounds to support people that are trying to help you they're trying to help your community they're trying to help yeah. your people you know that just makes me wonder how much they know that it really is even 
I, I know you say you, you say it's not not for profit it's literally like we're just trying to break even but how much do people actually know that even if you tell them yeah because a lot of things don't go in yeah 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 i mean it, yeah like maybe i'm attributing attributing uh also i mean it might be the case ignorance. that they've never yeah it might be a case that they've never actually run an event like that because well, if you've run an event I've, I've run a few events yeah never to to that scale yeah but even still it's, it's stress man it's stressful it's stress it's stressful to run anything like that even like coaching clinics where you like I'm just I just want to make not a massive loss yeah I'll take a little loss <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll take a hit on the yeah. chin but I just don't want a massive loss here yeah. and I'm getting nothing for all of my time you know, there's so many more productive things I could be doing. Yeah. I could be doing my PhD. Yeah, I'm yeah. procrastinating by <laughs> doing this big event. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, maybe people just haven't experienced that and don't actually. Yeah, like I, I mean, yeah. I, I have a different, a newfound respect for refereeing once <laughs> I had to do it. Yeah, oh, for real. Like, yeah. So I'll be like, so now when I talk to referees, I, w- I was never, I mean, I've had one technical in my life and that was yeah. like two weeks ago. <laughs> And it was wrong. I just went, oh, and he gave me a tech. <laughs> so I've not had a technical. Yeah. But yeah, like I've always been respectful to refs. But since I did one, yeah. since I refed a game, yeah, yeah. it's, you know, I'll be like, did you miss that one? Yeah, you missed yeah. that one. It's all right. Don't worry. We all miss. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> a balance. Like, obviously, you, I, you know, I want people to empathize with the situation for sure. But I don't want to go around being like, poor me, you know, like have some gratitude, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to be on that. Like, even then, I'm, I'm thinking back to everything I've just said. And I'm like, oh, I, I'm sounding a bit preachy. I'm going a bit on a rant here. But obviously it bothers me. Uh, yeah. At the same time, you know, maybe I need to do a better job of communicating exactly what goes into it and how it works. You know, one of the things that I'm planning on doing, but I'm trying to get hold of some hard drives, which I've got footage on that I need, is actually doing a vlog this year. So we're six weeks out right now. Uh, and I want to do a vlog, count one a week uh, for, the, for the eight weeks countdown. Basically like showing- the scenes. Yeah, like showing, what, that would like, help. Kind of like a topic. Like, so the first one would be like, why do I do the Hoops Whistle Classic? Explaining why I do it, why it started, kind of the history of it, etc., etc., etc. You know, second one might be about player selection. Like, how do we actually select the players? Because of course, everyone thinks that we've got some agenda and oh, we're not yeah. selecting certain players so because like, oh, Miles is the only guy from Birmingham. Yeah. Therefore, exactly. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so like, kind of like just to shed more light. Maybe, maybe that would that would help. Uh, yeah. On that front, but yeah, it's, it's tough, man. Like until until the the British basketball community is willing to invest more in, in itself, in, yeah, in itself in the game here. Um, the things won't grow. It's like, you know, so Bigfoot Basketball, you know, my guy Tony who runs mm-hmm. Bigfoot Basketball and starting five, yeah. you know, he's an independent guy, uh, you know, doing it for the love of the game. Like he doesn't have to, he could go and work in corporate or whatever and probably earn yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, I see them everywhere. They're doing yeah. their thing. And he's, and you know, if people, I wish that people, you know, in National League, Junior League, whatever, when they're buying their stuff, the first place they go to is Bigfoot or Swish, like or, or Hardwood Ventures. You know the, the guys in Newcastle that are doing a great job as well. Like these independent UK retailers, like that are trying to support the game. Because if they put, if that's where they put their money, right? What's going to happen is they're the ones that actually care about the game. So the game is going to come back to the game. They're yeah, the ones yeah. that sponsor the classic. It, they're the ones right that make in. the classic happen. That's like you said, you reinvest it right back into 100%. the hundred percent. If you if you're going to spend one hundred fifty quid directly with Nike, ain't not, Nike ain't doing shit. Nike yeah, ain't no. coming back to the UK and being like, oh, we're going to run some free events for you this summer. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Mm. If you do it, I guarantee you, yeah. If Bigfoot, Swish, Hardwood, you know, those are the three that directly come to mind right now. As a you know, apologies if I forgot anyone but you know if, if you directly invest in those that would then result in more sponsorship for guys like me 
that are then going to actually do games and do events that are going to benefit the community yeah. or they're going to do their own events or they're going to be able to grow their business even more so then they're going to have bigger selection of shoes and stuff and they're the ones that are going to give you the discounts and they're going to try and give back to the community they're the ones that are going to give you your, t- your club a discount on their, on, their, on their kit because they genuinely care yeah. and it's just like that kind of stuff people don't kind of realise um, but it's important yeah you there's know? like a yeah there is sort of a I can understand it from kids because obviously you want to wear what LeBron's wearing yeah, you yeah. want to wear what KD's wearing yeah, yeah. but really young kids would wear what Justin Robinson's wearing yeah if they're you know in the London Lions whatever organisation yeah kids we, would always ask for whatever tracksuits we were wearing and that was Birmingham that was Division 3 yeah like yeah, 100%. Like it, would, it, would, it would make, if, if you shifted all the money that is spent directly with the big brands and you spent it on, put it with the independent retailers or directly on merchandise stores for clubs, you know. Yeah, I guarantee so Riders, you, has, Riders has, a, has a merchandise mate, store, right? Yeah, like they are. Like that is, when they pop that, I mean, that is serious. It looks good. Yeah, it looks They're great. They're shifting. Yeah. Like it was mad. I remember the first time I went to Leicester, um, to check the facility after the facility had been built. Get off the train and walk down the street. I see a guy with like a Leicester Riders woolly hat on yeah. or a Leicester Riders scarf on or something. I was like, damn, I've yeah. never seen it. I've never seen anyone walking around wearing a bit of BBL merchandise. And Le- when Leicester City won the league, they did their team photos together. Yeah. I mean, it was all in all the papers. Yeah. It was on the news. Leicester, like on that side of things, you know, shout out to my guy Joe Pinchin, you know, on the branding side of things, mm. um, you know, and, and five or six, like what they're doing uh, is levels above, you know, every other club. Um, and they're really, really pushing things forward. They've got someone full-time working just on their merchandising now. It's, it's, it's that profitable for them. That they, cool. can, they can pay someone a full-time salary just to be responsible for their merchandising, uh, which, you know, five, six years ago would have been unimaginable, I think. Um, and I know I had a conversation with Paul Blake from Eagles a couple of weeks ago, and I know that they're trying to move in that direction as well, like really start pushing the merchandise side of things. Um, but yeah, like the the more money that's invested in the game, directly in the game, with the people, the people that are that are us, that are from the community, that are involved with the community, the better the game will be. Yeah. Um, and people don't realise that, man. Like, it's a balance, though. You know, it's a balance. But uh, but yeah, hundred percent is something that that's something that fundamentally, as an attitude, uh, needs to change. Yeah, I mean, was is Stance the British company? Basically, was it is it, is it a London company? Stance socks. Yeah. Nah. No. Nah. I'm almost certain. I'd be shocked yeah. if they were. Yeah, I heard something about it being a. Obviously, their offices are in California now. Yeah. I heard something about it originally being a, a British sock company. No, they've got. They've actually got a UK rep who we were talking to about getting socks for the Hoops Hoops Classic. Um, but I'm almost certain that they're American. Yeah. Because I, I was always just wondering if it if it's a British company, then I'd never even heard of it until they were the NBA sponsor. Yeah, yeah. If that's the case, that this company that makes basketball socks. Yeah. No one wears until. Till it's got that little NBA yeah. logo on it. Yeah, I mean they're doing. I mean they they raised a load of money, um, and they're obviously like, you know, they're doing really well. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that, um, yeah, I this is, talking about problems within the game. Like, if we had more successful companies from the UK that cared about basketball, like it would help the game so much. And this is the, it goes back to the whole conversation about not having people in, in positions of power, you know, within government that are fighting our corner. You know, everyone in government, uh, you know, went to private school and played rugby and football and cricket and whatever else. Yeah. So it's like, you know, if we're all playing netball or whatever. And so when they're having discussions about sport policy, they're the ones they care about. They're the ones they're gonna support. If we had, if we had people in parliament that actually were like, 
basketball changed my life you know basketball changed my life for the better and they're fighting that corner every single day I yeah. guarantee you the funding situation wouldn't be what it is right now you know we're, we're, we're lucky that we've got all party parliamentary group and obviously that, that's definitely made waves and, and, uh, and made a difference but it would be a completely different story if we had way more high level people whether it's in government whether it's in business that come from basketball background you know like imagine right I always say this if I became a billionaire or multi-millionaire do you know how much British basketball would benefit? Like, it would literally become... I would buy a franchise. I always say that. You know, I would sponsor the league. And I wouldn't care about making money off it. I'd be like, that can be my plaything. I will take a loss on all of that just because I want to help the game grow. Um, but there were owners like that I've heard, you know, in the 90s. There were... Yeah, well, it was owners. all an illusion back then. That's what a lot yeah. of people say, especially, you know, the Manchester, Manchester situation. Uh, you know, they're loaded. They're just pouring money into it, but they're not actually making any money. No, they just um, they just want to win. So it'll be like, you know, my dick's bigger than yours. Yeah. My team win. Yeah. So, you know, they're throwing but money at I players. Think this, well, since, since the recession, uh, that's been largely a situation in, 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 in Europe. You know, like, it's very hard for professional teams to be that profitable um, without large subsidies, whether it's on their, you know, their venue or, uh, you know, whatever it might be, to be able to even function. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. definitely, it's a, it's a tough environment. Like, the NBA is, is almost an exception in that sense of what they're doing. You know, they announced yesterday the best attendance is ever this season again. So it's like, not only have they got the biggest following on digital, but it's actually translating to people going to games and, and buying tickets and stuff. I think average attendance across the league was 17, over 17,000 or whatever. Um, and a big following here in this country. Oh, There's a lot of casual fans of the 100%. NBA here. You know what? One of, my, one of my most successful personal tweets ever was during the NBA London game when I said, if we got all of the NBA fans in the UK to take an interest in a domestic game, or into the, just even into the GB national team, mm. it would change so much. Like all my friends growing up that I grew up with, not all of them, but the vast majority of them, and this was the same when I was growing up, know everything about the NBA. They could tell you the 12th man on Phoenix Suns. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But they couldn't tell you who the GB starting five are. Like no. they have zero interest in a British game. Like They couldn't even name all the franchises. Yeah, the BBL uh, franchises. Yeah, 100%. And these are people that they love basketball. They actually love basketball. They yeah. love basketball. Love it. But they have no idea about the British game. And definitely I feel like I remember, uh, so when I was growing up, occasionally um, you'd see the BBL on TV. Uh, Brian Bears would be on TV. Uh, and I'd just, I'd lap it up. And there was a show, NBA 2001, with like Beverly Turner, um, that used to be on ITV, uh, that I used to watch every Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, it's that, that's the kind of thing where, it's, a, it's a, again, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. It's like you can't prove the viewership until you have the, the show, but you can't have the show until you've proven the viewership. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a tough situation. It, you know, I'm asked all the time, like, oh, what would you do to, you know, why isn't British basketball reached its potential? What would you do to change it and, and everything else? And I'm always just like, if I knew the answer to that, yeah, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. Do you know what I mean? Like, everyone, like, no one knows. Everyone thinks they know. Everyone's got an opinion. Uh, but actually, I think it's, I don't think it's a single thing. I think it's the, the perfect storm of everything. You know, whether it's coaching facilities, players, you know, talent, money, funding, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's the perfect storm of everything. But for me, actually, if I was to pick one thing, it starts with the people. It's like, until you have the right people in the right places to be able to make the right decisions, ain't nothing going to change. Mm. Because until you have more central control of the game from the federations, uh, more centralized control, where it's like they know everything that's going on, they've got a clearly defined pathway, they're like, oh, you're little Johnny from 
Middlesex, you're 12 years old and you want to be a professional basketball player and you're pretty good. This is this is exactly what you should do. Yeah. Like until until that type of stuff happens, ain't nothing going to change. It's still going to be, you know, we've got areas of really good work, whether it's Barking Abbey or Kola or Charmed or whatever, but they're working in isolation. Like, no, you know, they don't have very little involvement for the federation. They don't have anyone copying their model or knowing really exactly how they're doing what they're doing. Um, and and yeah, that's not going to change until 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 the right people are in the right places to... to to make that happen are you optimistic I mean it, I actually think that things could change pretty quickly if you put the right people in, in the right places like, I really think that if you like in if, the governing bodies yeah yeah 100% if, if you put someone if you put someone as a CEO of Basketball England that really knows the game and then you gave them like a really good operator uh, a really good performance person you know all the people that have been that know all the problems former players and yeah like well yeah I mean it's a balance you need, you need players but you need business people like it's you know because you've got to there's the commercial side of things that are really important of how you're going to fund everything, right? Are there guys that are both? Yeah, there that are. have left like, the game and then are, gone and been successful. I mean, obviously, other than you know, John and Meech is obviously the biggest yeah, example. Obviously, well, yeah, Meech is obviously one of them. There's, there's, there's guys, you know, guys like Steve Nelson, yeah. who now working, you know, he works in, uh, for Bristol, oh, I don't even remember, like, he works in Sports Governance Administration, um, you know, has, has a proven track record and knows this game inside out mm. and has a son and a daughter playing well you know one's now playing pro in Spain yeah. other one's playing in the ACC like um, who I think if you were to bring him in would do a very good job mm. uh, and there's other people like that there's so much knowledge there's so much knowledge on the ground yeah you just need to speak to those people uh, and you need to put those people in, in positions where they can do what they do you know like I, I remember um, you know Jimmy Guyman down in Solent like he said one summer that he, he offered uh, the national teams, he's like, he'll work out all the under 20 guys, all the guys, he's like, uh, you know, give them individuals over the summer, like, do this, do that. And this is a guy who's obviously a great coach, like, mm. really knowledgeable. Um, and, uh, you know, there was no support of that. There was no, he just said, oh, I just need, you know, expenses covered so I can get there traveling, whatever else. But, um, nah, it's just not going to happen, you know. It's someone like, someone like him, and then that obviously, you know, puts him in a situation where, you know, you're then creating a disconnect between people that actually you need a really strong connection with. Yeah. And the same, you know, Bucknell said on the podcast, I said, I remember I said to him, do you feel disrespected? Like, do you feel disrespected by the federations? Like, you're not appreciated. You know, you're a guy, you know, uh, played in the NBA, mm. you know, played at the highest levels in Europe, you know, did all this, did all that. Um, and like, what? And, 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 and the federations don't actually uh, bring you out of events, you know, uh, show appreciation to you, show you love, like put you put you on a pedestal as a legend. Yeah. And he and he said, yeah, like you know, I, and that's and a good that, question. That's that's part of the problem. Like yeah. you know, Amici, right? When the NBA comes to town, Amici every single year, he gets more love from the NBA at one event than he's had in his history with Basel England. He's never been brought out of a basketball in an event and, you know, and, and shown to the crowd at halftime and everyone gives him applause and says, oh, you know, like, we appreciate what you've done. We appreciate how you laid the foundations for other people to follow in your footsteps and, and whatever else. We're going we're gonna to put you forward to the media as a spokesperson and, and this and that. And obviously now he's in a position where he just, I, I mean, people criticise him all the time for being so negative. Um, but that's what years of that yeah. sort of feeling of disrespect will do. I've thought that more as well for, in terms of sort of players. So Luke Nelson, for example, playing in the Summer League. Should have been should have been on the news. Kareem playing in Real Madrid should be on the news. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We should know who these people are. A hundred percent. The the media the, the media side of things is is so important. Like, and that's just that's just two players playing now. Yeah. Young guys playing now, let alone guys who who 
devoted their life to the game and like the Bucknells of the world who yeah. played at such a high level and then have all this knowledge and all this ability yeah. to change the game in, in this country. Yeah, 100%. Just not given that love. 100%. Um, it's a sad situation, man. Like, it's a real sad situation and that is definitely, you know, one of the things that needs to change and yeah. I hope, I hope will change. Um, but who knows, like, you know, that's, that's not, I can only do what I do. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I'll interview these guys and I'll put them on a pedestal and show appreciation and whatever else as much as I can. And that's, you know, with the Hoops Fix All Star Classic, a massive part of it is like trying to celebrate the history and the culture of the game. You know, we've had Bucknell coaching, we've had KB coaching. Mm. Um, you know, we, we invite uh, GB guys down to the game. Uh, we invite people from the administration down to the game. It wants to be a celebration of everyone within British basketball, like bringing, you know, the grassroots all the way up to the senior administration um, to bring them all together and get on the same page because like, there, there has been a lack of a lack of working together, everyone doing their own thing, uh, politics and all that. Um, but yeah, it's frustrating. Like, it, the, it, it frustrates me so much mm. uh, and, I, and I feel like that's why we get so many opportunists coming into the sport from outside the sport because they basically look at it and they're like, damn, like, you got this many people playing basketball. Like you, you're t yeah, you're ticking all these boxes, but you haven't worked out yet. Like I can do that. Mm. And you know, we've now got all these people that have come in thinking that they're going to change everything, thinking that they're going to be the one that can do whatever needs to be done. Uh, and then they realise pretty quickly that, nah, that's, it's not as easy as you think it is. Yeah. It doesn't work how you think it's going to work. Um, you know, I do, I do consultancy uh, with brands or whatever around British basketball, around the market and wherever else. That's, I'm, actually, that's what I'm doing after this. Uh, and especially a lot of them will come in from America and they think that they, they're just like, oh, we could do this, it's what we did in LA or New York or whatever, and we could do this in England and, and this is gonna work really well. And I'm like, we don't understand is like, the UK market is so unique, it's so different. You yeah. cannot do what you do in, uh, in Europe, in America and do exactly the same thing and expecting it to be just successful, it just won't. Mm. It's the same, you know, like the NBA has cracked it in terms of they come here, they sell out the O2, you know, fair play to them. It's a big, get loads of media coverage. The only way they get media coverage, actually, one of the only ways is to include all the celebrities, courtside and everything else, but, but they do it. You know, EuroLeague Final Four comes to London. Yeah, I was originally, there. Originally, it was a two-year deal. It wasn't even full. Yeah, not coming, close. not coming back for the second year. Not doing I was it. watching the Preston CSK, engage. Barcelona, Real Madrid, yeah. and Olympiacos, and it was like half full. Yeah, the it's, just, it's the same situation. Like, you know, I would assume that they came in thinking, well, it's London. There's freaking eight million people in London. Like, how can we not sell, you know, 10,000, 20,000 tickets or whatever? Yeah. And uh, it was dead. It was dead. And then yeah. they're not coming back again. Like, it's a shame. And again, like, it, British, I would say, you know, we take very little interest in European basketball here. It's basically the NBA or nothing. Um, yeah. And that doesn't, that doesn't help. And also, that, you know, that's partly because we don't have a British team competing in Europe. And we haven't had a British team competing in Europe, right? Like that... Uh, it means a lack of context there. So, but yeah, it's it's such a unique one. Like the British market is such a unique situation. Uh, it needs bespoke, custom plans for everything. Uh, you can't just cookie cutter something else that you've done somewhere else, thinking that it's going to work. Um, yeah, we need Lavar to save the day. <laughs> don't even know where we'd be able to crack that one. <laughs> I don't even know where I'd be wanting him to come <laughs> here and, and to deal with all of He'd that get on the news for sure he's good at getting on the news yeah I mean yeah it's, uh, <laughs> it's mad how the American press has kind of legitimised his opinion as if it's a worthy opinion it's like LeVar yeah. says this yeah he's and on it's the like, talk shows you know any other NBA player's p parent could say anything and you're not going to then be like oh this is like front page news on ESPN or whatever like, yeah, you're not the, the he's press built, was interviewing him after games yeah so like he has built like rules. the perfect uh, the perfect hype machine um, 
yeah, it's impressive. Like it's like genuinely, I tip my hat to him. Like what what they're doing with it is is big time, man. And it's independent, so I respect that. I wanted to talk to you as well about we just spent an hour and a half talking about ball. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you what we talked about before. You talking about psychedelics. Yeah. But I don't know. I know you're wary of time. So yes, we got half an hour. Yeah. Um, so where have you, you just been? You say you just come back from somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, I came back uh, from my third ayahuasca retreat um, in that was March the seventh, I think I went. Um, so a three day ceremony in Holland. Uh, you know, I uh, it was you know life changing, life affirming as it always is. Mm. Um, I think I first started experimenting uh, with psychedelics maybe five years ago now, five, six years ago. And I mean, it's no doubt 100% been the biggest driver of my own personal growth and self-awareness uh, and one of the most positive things I could have done, I think. Uh, it's changed my life and actually saved my life in many ways as well. Um, it's amazing how many people have that exact same similar sort of story to tell with that in terms of their growth and their personal development but how completely underappreciated that is in terms of research I mean that's what my research yeah. is focused on yeah. but how completely non-existent that is yeah. so we're, we're all ju- we'll all just take yeah transformation yeah yeah oh yeah, it's really transformative but no one at any point says well, what actually what, what does that mean yeah it's just a big word that we, we throw about yeah I mean well like I mean first of all for context right I am the squarest dude ever. <laughs> like the squarest dude. I, you know, when I'm growing up, I'm just like, when I was growing up, I remember, I, I mean, I, I don't really drink alcohol. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't start drinking, I didn't really start drinking alcohol until I was 23, 24. And then even now I'll drink alcohol maybe three times a year, four times a year, like very, very rarely, special occasions or whatever. Um, and aside from that, it's like, you know, I, I very much follow the rules. You know, if there's a sign that says don't walk on the grass, I ain't walking on the grass. Like people tell me to do something, you know, I bow down to authority and, mm-hmm. and whatever else. That's just the way I am. That's the way I've always been. So I remember, I remember explicitly saying when I was younger, I will never do drugs. That's one thing that's never going to change. Like it's never going to change. Um, and then I've got a friend, one of my best friends, um, who for years before me had been using psychedelics. Uh, I mean, he's now kind of done everything from, you know, magic mushrooms to iboga to cambo to ayahuasca. Um, and uh, I think seeing how centered he was, how mm-hmm. self-aware he was, how intelligent he was, how grounded he was, uh, it kind of piques your interest. You know, it's that thing of like, I feel like I try not to be too preachy about it because yeah. it's almost like, actually, I just want to act in a certain way that people are like, huh, why mm-hmm. are you like that? Why yeah, are you so yeah. compassionate? Why are you so understanding? Like, why are you whatever it might be? Um, and that was exactly how it was with him. It was like, you know, and, and, and from conversation with him, it was like, you know, this is what I do and, and mm-hmm. uh, this is how it's helped me. And so, yeah, like I, uh, yeah, first did Magic Mushrooms. Um, and again, still, I'm very much of the, of the cloth of, of only things from Mother Nature. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I like it. It's just uh, 100% natural, or whatever. Um, so not not DMT, but the just, plants that have yeah, the DMT that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like my I mean, my first mushroom experience was was pretty profound. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it kind of gives you a 
an awareness of there's more to life than this reality that we experience on a day-to-day, mm-hmm. which is pretty mind-blowing in itself. Um, but then also, like, for me personally, I mean, like, getting, getting a little bit deep. I lost my mum when I was very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, she took her own life. And I didn't really think that that had affected me in any type of way. Mm-hmm. I was very, I mean, it was completely repressed. You know, I never, yeah, yeah. never thought about it, never missed her, you know. Um, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't even in my mind. Uh, and doing these things, it was, it, it was the first thing that kind of opened up my eyes that there's a bit of pain there, a yeah. bit of sadness there, a bit of grief there. Um, so the mushrooms was kind of like the, the first step of, of that. And it's then introspection, isn't it? Yeah. I've had a similar experience. I lost my dad when I was a kid. Okay. I had a similar experience as well. It's kind of like a, oh, yeah, no, that has actually completely changed my life. It's completely made me who <laughs> I am. Actually, it's yeah, exactly absolutely. why I am in every yeah. single way. Um, yeah. And yeah, and then, uh, so, you know, I'd, you know, I've done mushrooms oh, many, many times. <laughs> and uh, in 2015, um, my friend was has been saying, we, we need to go to Holland and do ayahuasca. And I was always just like, nah, it's just too heavy. Like I read about it, you know, and it's just like, it's just too deep. I don't know whether I can, I can deal with that. Long story short, I ended up going. And I mean, that was just, uh, mushrooms are like a gentle tickle, you know. It's the gateway. Yeah, mushrooms well, is the gateway drug to it. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's a completely different ball game, you know. It's like, if, if mushrooms are a one on the scale, ayahuasca is a fucking hundred, you know what I mean? Wow. It's, it was, and that, I went with intentions, so I went, you know, like, and again, for me, this isn't a, it's not a party thing. This is, it's deeply about my own self-development, introspection, yeah. whatever else. You know, it's always done in a ceremonial setting, mm-hmm. music, candles, incense, whatever it might be, um, and, uh, and going in with intentions of things that I want to explore. So when I went, when I went to Holland, the first time, um, I'd gone in with, like, just, you know, some random things, the things that I wanted to, to experience and to, to, to think about. And it was just nothing. The whole thing, it basically just completely sliced me open and opened up the wound from losing my mum. Like it was, that was, uh, the whole entire three days was just 20 years of repressed grief um, of letting it all out, of mourning. Uh, I mean, it was really difficult. Uh, You know, I wanted to go home. Uh, After the first day, I was like, I can't do this. Um, You know, I managed to be convinced to stay. there was all sorts of physical physical stuff going on as well. Like I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in 2011, 2010, 2011 time. And so there was this physical manifestation of the pain in my stomach. Mm-hmm. So not only was I emotionally going through it, but physically it felt like I was being stabbed. And yeah. I mean, it was like, it was incredibly difficult. Uh, and, but, but yeah, like it's like you come through the storm and when you come out the other side, the insight that it given to me uh, in terms of explaining maybe why I am like the way I am, uh, you know, why, why certain things have happened, um, things I need to work on, on myself, uh, it was life-changing, you know, and I, I, basically the entire three days was really dark. The last, the last, for the last hour of the last day uh, was amazing. It was like utopia and they say that Mother, mother ayahuasca they call it mother ayahuasca mm-hmm. and again like you know I, I'm not all woo woo and stuff and, yeah. and the first time I heard people say oh mother ayahuasca I'm like what are you talking about like uh, but then when you experience it you're like it's a completely feminine energy like 100% of course it's a woman of course it's mother ayahuasca and um, you know they say that she will always leave you on a positive note because she wants you to come back um, 
and and so and that's essentially what happened is like I left and then when, when I came back to England I mean I felt incredible like I felt unbelievable like reset my levels of what feeling good feels like every day I'd wake up and just so raring to go I'd be in the shower I'd be laughing to myself with joy um, it's like a medicine to you I was just it was it's just it's unexplainable uh, and and but I mean you've also got to be so careful with these things and and you know the most important the most important part of any psychedelic experience is the integration right it's how you take those lessons or the things that you experience and the things you see and how you how you integrate them into your day-to-day life and, and the actions that you take as a result of the things that you experience yeah and what I I think what I messed up on was uh, I did a very very poor job of the integration of dealing with exactly what it's shown me um, and dealing with the grief and all of a sudden like for the first time in my life I missed my mum like I'd never missed her and I'd wake up and I'd be like oh I feel a bit sad like I kind of miss my mum like and kind of after that afterglow kind of wears off which I mean it lasted probably two months ish like yeah. something like that where you, you're feeling incredible every single day and then after that afterglow weared off worn off um, you're faced with your reality of like all this stuff like all this stuff which you're trying to mentally process which is really difficult uh, and I did an incredibly poor job and uh, things started getting pretty dark for me. Um, and that, I mean, we could be here all day explaining everything that's happened, but it, it kind of all came to a head last year, at the start of last year. Uh, you know, I was kind of, uh, there's, there's a girl that I was involved with for a, for a long time and that was a really complicated situation which was emotionally very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, then I had all this this mum stuff going on, like of, of grieving for her. Like you know, I would, ever since I came back from Holland, I never used to cry. Like, I hadn't cried for years. Right? Yeah. All of a sudden, I'd watch a movie and something sad would happen, and I'd start crying. I'm like, what the hell? Like, just I'm you're just, more in touch with yourself. Yeah, hun- yeah, hundred percent. Um, but like all of that happened, and then uh, I mean, like work was I work a lot. I'm the most motivated and driven person I know. Like I have these goals and I'm so intent on achieving them. Mm-hmm. But it also means that I work seven days a week yeah. for you know 10 plus hours a day. Uh, You're crazy as well. And it's, yeah, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's not sustainable and it's not good yeah, for no, me. And so it good. kind of got to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm emotionally all over the place. Like I'm grieving for my mum for the first time, mourning yeah. her for the first time. I, I, I'm just like, all I'm doing is spending 12 hours a day in front of a laptop. Um, I don't want a beer anymore. I was done. I was, last start of last year, I was done. I was just like, I do not want a beer. And that, and this is what I'm saying about the dangers of these, these things. Yeah. That was a direct result of everything that happened on the first, the first Ayahuasca experience. Um, so yeah, it got to the point where, I, I mean, I was, at the start of last year, I was, uh, I was, you know, seriously considering taking my own life. Um, and then I, I'd booked a trip to Holland, uh, to go for the second time. And it'd been two years since I'd first gone. Yeah. And it was kind of like the, the, I mean, it was like, it was, I was ready to go again. I felt like I, I was too scared to go back because mm-hmm. it was so difficult the first time. Yeah. Um, and I went back and I mean it saved my life like 100% saved my life I mean the first first night was <laughs> the shaman was experimenting with a different vine that they hadn't used it was a 100 year old vine from the Amazon in some place called the River of Death okay. and, uh, and as a result the first night where they normally give you a light dose because they want to see how you react and then they can give you a dose accordingly uh, on the first full day yeah. um, the first night was wild like people I mean it was insanely deep like really strong and I mean, I went through some stuff and, and, and basically 
I'd gone with the intention um, of doing a better job of the integration and as a result of that I took a journal with me because I was like I need to take this journal and I need to write in the morning everything that happened yeah. so that I've got this thing that I can refer back to and be like okay this is what I need to do when I get home these are the things and if I do these I'll be okay and actually what ended up happening is whilst I'm peeking I get the journal out and I start writing so I've got this journal right which is full I mean if you were to look at it now it's like the ramblings of a madman but it's like my bible yeah, for life yeah. of like the things that I need to do to, to look after myself um and I had to, you know, I had to go through my fear, you know, all my feelings of self-loathing and, 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 you know, feeling like a useless, worthless piece of shit. And like, why haven't I achieved these things yet? Mm. You know, I've never celebra- celebrated my birthday because my birthday has always been a reminder of another year's past. And I still haven't achieved my goals. So I've never, you know, never told anyone where my birthday is. Like all this stuff, I've just, I'm like, dealing with all of these. Uh, so the first night was incredibly difficult, like a lot of tears. Um, I, I went with my friend and it, it, it made me go and tell him that I, I'm suicidal. So I had to go and tell him. Uh, so that he kept kept an army and, and made sure that I was okay, mm. uh, and then um, and then the next day, you know, I'm I was ready to go home again. I was just like, I'm done. This is just way too much. Yeah. Next day we drink. It's the most disgusting tasting thing. Like the yeah, most that's dis- another reason disgusting tasting thing you could ever imagine. Like it's hard to even keep down. So we drink and uh, and I feel it and I start getting emotional. I'm crying again. And I'm just like, here we go again, like, fuck. Mm. Um, and I get my journal out again and start writing in it. And I start writing, you don't want to kill yourself anymore. And then I wrote it once, I wrote it again. And as I'm writing, my words become squiggles. And then by the time I get to the last line of the page, it's just a dash across the page. And as I dashed across the page, the thought just dissipated. And it's like, it's gone. And I, yeah. all of a sudden I was like, ah. I don't want to kill myself. Like just like just like that, mm-hmm. the 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 switch flipped, and then it was like, I am going to show you how good life would be if you loved yourself. And then I just experienced these, I mean, just loving myself, and and all of the words in the journal became rather than being this, you know, you're a useless, worthless piece of crap. It was like, you're the best, Sam. You're amazing. I love you. Everything you're doing is great. You're on the right path. Just keep on going. You know, you need to enjoy enjoy your life more. Um, you know, I've got these conversations to myself where it's like, well, how do I how do I enjoy my life? I don't even know how to enjoy my life. How do I enjoy? Just do things that you enjoy. Go for a walk in nature. Eat ice cream. I actually wrote, uh, do things that you that you judge other people for being a bum for. You know, like <laughs> because good. if they're not working towards their goals, it's like, yeah, oh, you lazy fair, fuck. Yeah. You know. Um, that's good. I like that. So it's kind of like <laughs> stop having so much fun. Yeah, it's yeah. work. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it, I, it was incredible. And, and uh kind of went through all of that. And it, and it was like, it gave me a, a load of things that I have to do when I get home. Uh, it was like the moment you go home, you have to cancel everything this summer. If you do not, and it, this is explicitly written on multiple pages in the journal, if you do not cancel everything when you get home, you'll be dead before the end of the summer. You have to clear off everything. And that was why I came home and I canceled the Hoot Foods All-Star Classic last summer. It was gone. And, and that was the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. We were, we were six weeks, six weeks, eight weeks out. Yeah. All the sponsorship money was confirmed. The venue was confirmed. The only thing we hadn't done was actually select the players and tell the players that we, that we were going to do it. And we hadn't officially announced it, but it was all in place. Yeah. And I had to pull the plug and I had to contact all, all the sponsors and say, I'm really sorry, I can't do it. I'm going through some stuff. Obviously, I didn't tell them exactly what was going yeah. on, but I, I said, you know, I'm going through some personal stuff and I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed and being stressed and I need to clear up some space in my schedule. 
you know, I put a thing out on social <clears throat> just saying that uh, I'm unfortunately not doing the, the event this year. And I got so much support from people. People seem to really understand. Um, and last summer, I, I made a point of not taking on any more uh, contracts. Uh, yeah. So that I just cleared the space to have the to have the headspace to kind of deal with everything in my head that I needed to deal with. Um, and that was kind of like the beginning of of life as I know it. Um, it changed everything, and you know. And then, like I said, I, I went again this year, and again there was some dark stuff. There always is, um, but but also there was an incredible amount of. Um, just life affirming stuff. Like I said to you before, I got clarity on my purpose and my mission and yeah. realizing that British basketball is what I want to be doing. And regardless of the financial situation, cause it does get frustrating. I want to settle down like everyone else. I want to get a mortgage. I want to get a house. I've got yeah, no yeah. shot of doing that anytime soon. But, but actually like, as long as I fulfill my life purpose, as long as I push and continue to push British basketball forward, I'll be good. It doesn't matter about anything else. Everything else is irrelevant. So, um, it crystallized that for me. Uh, and yeah, it just put me in a good place, you know? So, um, yeah, like it, like I said, it's it's really difficult to explain everything that's that's happened on those those three experiences uh, over the last three four years, um, but I mean, best thing I've ever done. Like, yeah. I I genuinely think that if I hadn't have gone, I wouldn't be here today. You know, um, yeah, changed my life, saved my life, uh, and then you know, and then the fact that these things are illegal and the fact that people don't have access to them is just it's criminal to me because they could be helping so many people. So many people deal with this yeah. stuff. I mean, the amount of things that they that these psychedelics help with I mean addictions PTSD depression uh, any physical health mental illness the amount of things that have re sort of positive reports of actual this growth and this transformation even if it's gradual you know I mean yours sounds like it was gradual it yeah. was I went this time this is the lesson I learned yeah I went again didn't really think I wanted to wasn't really ready but I feel like it's my time to do it again yeah learn this other lesson Go one more time. Let's learn this more lesson. Now you understand. Now you're on the right path. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's like an inspiration. Uh, there's an expression. Uh, inspiration is like uh, showering. It's effective, but you have to do it often. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I, I genuinely think like these things uh, really should be done. Ideally, in an ideal situation, if you went in a country where they were illegal, once every three months, you know, like to provide you that reset. To yeah. like, I can get caught up in, like, I'm so driven, man. I want certain things so much. I want to achieve certain things so much. But actually, I need to remind myself that it doesn't matter. It's none of it's important. Mm. All that matters ultimately is the people that I love, yeah. you know, the things that I love. Like, uh, that's the most important thing. Um, and so kind of having that healthy dose of balance of realizing this is, this is important, like I care about it, it's my, it's my life's work, but also it's completely irrelevant and, and, and insignificant and doesn't actually matter. Uh, and putting that, put, having that perspective is really important, definitely for me to stay sane on some level. Because um, the, the moment you tie your self-worth up into your work, like you're fucked. Because when work's good, you're great. But when work's not good, you're yeah. fucked, you know? Um, yeah, and work will be up and downs. Yeah, I mean always. And if your emotional state is tied into those up and downs, you're gonna, you're along for the ride. You're strapped in, and there's no way off. A hundred percent. I had a similar sort of a transformative sort of mindset in terms of work and what's important when my son was born. Yeah. It's almost. I mean, not through the pregnancy. Yeah, you know, I'm doing the supportive things. I'm going out at two in the morning for a fucking double cheeseburger with Gherkins <laughs> or whatever. The silly those kind of things. But the second he's born, it's like. Fuck this! He, like I need to do everything for, yeah, this, yeah. for this child, and literally, that doesn't mean all the things I think. So throughout the whole pregnancy, I'm thinking I need to get this sorted. We need to get the house sorted, all this furniture, yeah. do all this, do all that. Yeah. 
He doesn't care about any of that. Yeah. He does not care nah. about any of that. He just wants to have fun, mess about. Yeah, it should be loved, man. Yeah, that's all he wants. That is, uh, when my, my sister, I've got two nephews now, and again, that's, that was pretty game-changing for me. Um, yeah. And uh, I actually, <coughs> one of the times I was in Holland, I, I wrote letters to my family, <coughs> and I wrote a letter to, at that time, I only had one nephew, his name's Rufus. And I wrote him a letter, and I always had this weird because I'm very not materialistic at all, mm-hmm. and I I I'm kind of sort of and I'm pretty anti-commercialism and all and all this, yeah. and so like, I've never really bought him a present because he's got so many toys. Like everyone buys him so much crap. He's got like just toys for days. Yeah. So I'm like, well, if I buy him another thing, it's not going to really change anything, and he's going to be more crap that's going to get thrown away at some point. Blah blah blah. So I kind of but I had this weird thing of just feeling guilt about it. Of like oh, I've never really bought him a gift. And um, I was writing in, in this letter, I was like, you know, I actually wrote, I'm sorry that uh, I don't buy you, I haven't bought you a present. And I was like, actually, no, I'm not sorry, uh, because you don't need more presents. What you need is you just need me to be around, you just need my love. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down home at least once, I think I said, at least once a month and spend some quality time with you, just me and you, uh, and we'll bond and we'll, we'll form that relationship. Nice. You know, and you realize that's, that's way more that's, valuable. Yeah, 100%. That's all that matters, 100% man. 100% more valuable to him. It's like you, you questioned your own morals by feeling guilty. Yeah. So like your own perspective on, on what's important is that, you know, it's not these material things. If I buy you a toy, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. But then you feel guilty, like you, you're your own worst enemy. Like but that guilt is making you... The psychedelics, they give you the reminder that you need. Yeah. Uh, and it's so easy to have an experience and then just come back and then get bogged down in the day-to-day of everything and just get back into old patterns because mm-hmm. that's what you're around. That's the environment you're in. We're around people that we're around, you know, everyone that's buying things all the time and, you know, thinking that the, the nicer car that I have, the better person I am and yeah. whatever else and all this crap. Um, but, yeah, it, it provides that reset of being like, actually, no, that's insignificant. That doesn't matter. This is what's important. Um, and that's why, yeah, I think, yeah, there's the, if, if everyone... If everyone, if the whole world, yeah, had had some type of psychedelic experience, I genuinely think it would transform the entire world. Like, genuinely think. It's that, it's that whole thing of, uh, you know, they, they say that uh, in the 60s it all got shut down because, of course, everyone's doing SD and whatever else, and they don't want to fight. They're all about no, loving yeah. each other and whatever else. And people don't want to go to war. I remember, I think it was Aubrey Marcus was, was saying on his podcast that experiments they've done with psilocybin, or it's like with hunters, because so, you know, of course, your senses, you become hypersensitive, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and so uh, there's actually real benefit in microdosing before you go hunting, because all of a sudden yeah. you're, you're tuned into the environment, you're tuned into the animals, and you can, you can find them, you can hunt them down. But if you take too much, all of a sudden you don't want to hunt that animal, you don't want to kill that animal, you don't want to yeah. eat that animal, because you're in a di- completely different space of, you know, love and affection and care and, and all this kind of stuff. I think, it, is it Joe Schilling, the kickboxer that microdoses? The Thai boxer. I, I think know. he microdoses with with uh, MDMA or, or something, or LSD, and that's the similar situation. Like, I mean, if you take too much, you're not gonna wanna fight the yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. But just a little bit, you get that enhanced. Yeah. Everything seems like it's slow motion. Yeah, you? Uh, yeah it's, uh, it's incredible, man. Like the And we're just scratching the surface because we've not been allowed to do research yeah. on those things. Even, yeah, you think if we even had 40 years, of medical, 40 years of research? It would have been amazing. It would change everything. Um, but I mean, the, the original reason they're illegal in the first place is to target certain communities. So the same reason cannabis was kept that way was to attack. It was the Nixon administration. It's not a conspiracy. I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's actually, it's actually truth. But uh, it was to attack the Black Panther movement was for cannabis. And to attack the hippie movement was to crack okay. down on LSD. 
because you could make it in your bathtub, there was no way of cracking down on LSD. Yeah. So there's a there's a government warehouse somewhere in the states with that's filled with uh, which is now degraded, of course, yeah. LSD, but it was filled with just confiscated. Yeah medical grade medical quality LSD yeah. and MDMA and all that stuff we, and, and we, we couldn't do research we can't access it you know it, if everyone was if everyone you know had kind of taken or had an experience and then it's like you'd you'd start looking at the world and just realise how fucked up everything is yeah and then there would be revolts on the streets do you know what I mean it's like how is it possible that you you've got someone that has 10 billion zillion trillion dollars in the bank and you've got someone that doesn't even have a house yeah. You know, someone that's homeless. Like, how yeah, is that even quality. possible? And you have that empathy and the compassion of, like, this is a problem. Like, this is actually a problem. Uh, there's, yeah, there's, um, I, like I said, I, I, I think these things are so important. It's why I'm talking about it. And for sure, in my mind, I'm like, oh, you know, am I potentially jeopardizing myself in any type of way? Um, but you shouldn't be. That's a stigma that shouldn't be there. Uh, yeah. Because it, these things are so powerful. You, I mean, you just said it saved your life. 100%. So there is, I, I would say, there's not going to be repercussions for that anyway, but anything that anyone that has a judgmental opinion based on that is full of shit, and I wouldn't ignore them any. I'd ignore <laughs> them completely. Yeah. I wouldn't pay attention to them anyway because they haven't had any kind of experience like that. Yeah, and you, you, it doesn't have to be psychedelic to have that experience. No, to to completely shift your perspective on you know, rather than earning seven pounds twenty an hour is I sold an hour of my life for seven pounds twenty. <laughs> it's a massive perspective shift that a yeah. lot of people don't go to. Yeah. And when they go through it, they'll switch and they'll stop being mean or they'll stop asking for fucking free tickets <laughs> to whatever it is. And yeah. it sh- changes the way that they live their life. Yeah. And you shouldn't sure. feel you shouldn't feel bad about talking about anything like that. Yeah, no, I just think there yeah, it does have the stigma. And so it's like when you're aware that it has a stigma. You know, like even my family, some of my family members find it difficult. Uh, that's, yeah, that's you know, always going to be. Oh, you're going to Holland again to go and do drugs. Yeah, that's always. Mums, um, mums are going to worry, yeah, or you know, yeah. aunts are going to worry, or whatever yeah. it is. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, like I said, I, you know, my my secondary purpose is to is to help spread the word, um, and I'm going to be doing more work with the UK Psychedelic Society to try and help them uh, producing content and whatever else because. I genuinely think it's important and it's a cause that's, you know, massively close to my heart and I feel like it could have, you know, world-changing impact um, for so many people uh, that it's, yeah, it's, it's criminal that more people don't have access to them. Well, when you get going with that, it would be amazing to get you back on. Because we could yeah. fill a whole other podcast just talking about... I mean, yeah, we want to go to the ayahuasca experience. We can go, deep. go so deep, man. Like, so deep. I gave you, like, 5%. Yeah, you know? a tiny little taste, taste that session. Just yeah. to keep them interested for next time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no it's problem. Amazing. It was a really good conversation. Um, thank you so much for, for having me. Cheers for it. And you accommodating me as well. I mean, there's disco balls in here. <laughs> no one's going to see it, but there's, there's disco balls in here. So it's kind of <laughs> gnarly to be doing it in here. Cool, man. So, no problem. Thanks, yeah, man. no, my pleasure. Thank you. listening to uh, episode 12 of the Trapodemic podcast uh, if you'd like to support the podcast you can there's a number of ways you can support you can share on social media you can you can like posts you can you can leave us a review on iTunes that's really helpful actually leaving, a, leaving us a nice five star review 
takes 30 seconds of your time. Uh, yes, uh, you can also check out trapademic.com, check out our other episodes, and uh, yeah, share social media, tell, tell a friend, tell someone, and uh, yeah, help to grow the podcast to get more people talking about things, long form conversations. Uh, check out trapademic.com. There's also a, a Patreon that I'm really not pushing. <laughs> I'm reluctant to, to do because it feels weird but um, we've got some people supporting the podcast already and it's because of people like that that you know when these things can even continue the way they are the idea is never for me to make money it's it's in order to sort of pay travel for for guests and you know, we can get guests from further afield and, and, uh, and YouTube channels and stuff I think We've got a goal of the next goal is is for, for them to go on YouTube so to video some of the episodes and that's the goal to really start to grow as a, as a platform and and, and uh, even have articles and other content on the site and stuff. So, but that's all in the, the thing. So yeah, if you'd like love to support, then thank you. It's very much appreciated and uh, it's because of our supporters, however little or even if it's the likes or the shares and it's free, it's fine content will always remain free uh, but you can support if you want to and uh, we appreciate it if you do thank you for listening <laughs>